You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 434. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 4L at an Airbnb in San Pedro, California. Today's show is recorded on the 15th of July, 2020. In today's episode, Iran blames human error for the shooting down of a Ukrainian flight in January. In Greece, investigators say a passenger jet came dangerously close to a helicopter because the plane's two pilots operated the controls at the same time. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, who killed Yogi Bear? So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 434 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds, New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, an airline captain for a major legacy carrier based here in Atlanta, well, not here, in Atlanta, Georgia. And I am joined today by my awesome co-hosts... From his mobile studio in Seoul, Korea, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Brightling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. Coming at you from the future, actually. It's uh, Thursday Ooh. over here. Oh, well, so, uh, how is how is I've Thursday? Seen things, I've seen things you guys haven't seen <laughs> oh, yet, that. and uh, I can't say much, but it's a good one. <laughs> we, we need him to take a look at the lottery. Yeah, I know. That helps us all out. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't work that way, though, does it? Nope. nope. Uh, shoot. Yeah, we, I wish, yeah. Oops. All right. Now it's time to introduce another co-host. His, uh, from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, good evening, gentlemen. Lovely to be back on the show again. Um, where's the lady? Well, I guess she's still doing that thing they call work. 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 Okay. Yeah, so she's going to be joining us in progress, hopefully within the hour, we're hoping. And also joining us in our mobile studio in San Pedro, California. He's an Acme junior pilot, a craft brew junkie, a train addict, and all-around great guy, Captain Stephen Ivey. <laughs> hey, well, I, I wish. Uh, good to see everybody again. Great to uh, have you with me again, and uh, we'll talk in the segment where we get all caught up with stuff. Uh, what's been going on with us for the last, what, 10 days now, I think? 10 days, yeah. Yeah, so it's been a lot of fun. But before we do that, let's talk about some news
stand by for news. Uh, first item in our news notebook is this. Uh, this happened in, um, oh, it really was just, it was just this year. It seems like it was long ago. That's not on January 8th, 2020. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 737. Um, let's see. It was a Ukrainian airlines, uh, 737, uh, taking off from, uh, Tehran, uh, was shot down by two missiles on July 12th, 2020. Iran's AIB released another updated interim report, both in Persian and English. And uh, they, uh, let's see, let me read a little bit here of their report. Um, After the relocation of one of the air defense units of Tehran, uh, clearly causing a change in its heading, a failure occurred due to human error and following the procedure of system north alignment. As a result, A 107-degree error was induced into the system. As such, while the uh, flight uh, 752, what was the uh, airline again? Was it Ukrainian Air? Ukrainian International? Uh, Yeah, Ukrainian International. Okay. Um, So, let's see. They, while the flight 752 aircraft was flying, the direction of objects and targets detected by the system was being observed with an increase of 107 degrees by the operator. Such a functional failure initiated a hazard chain, which of course could be controlled, providing other planned measures are implemented. They weren't. At um, 243.56, the air defense unit operator detected a target at his 250-degree azimuth, flying a 5252 degree course. At the same time, after takeoff, the a uh, Ukrainian 752 had been flying towards the defense system from a 143-degree azimuth. The aircraft was passing the 309-degree course. Um, just um, about 25 seconds or so later, the operator notified the specifications of the detected target to the coordination center over the communication network. The target was, in fact, the very Flight 752 departing from IKA, detected by the system as a target approaching Tehran from approximately the southwest, although they were not, actually, because of that 107-degree error. Um, The recorded information indicates that the mentioned defense systems notification was not communicated successfully. Another link in the chain of events was formed at this point. They're using the the metaphor of uh, the uh, chain and breaking. No. It's like Swiss cheese, except it doesn't taste as good. It's a chain. Okay. Yeah. And so it's metallic. It's very metallic uh, tasting. Yeah, that tastes That's good. The, uh, another uh, metaphor to use for safety. So if you have a chain and everything is unbroken, then everything's going to be okay. But then sometimes you have little places where the chain is uh, weakened or actually broken. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the system operator began analyzing the observable information and categorized the detected target as a threat, although the likelihood of identifying the target for a threat was considerably raised due to his lack of awareness of the 107-degree error. Yet, still at this point, if he had identified the target as a passenger aircraft, the missile would not have been launched. The wrong identification is another link in the chain of events. Uh, At 244.41, without receiving any response from the coordination center, uh uh-oh, The air defense unit operator fired a missile at the threatening target he had detected. Under the applicable procedures, if the defense system operator cannot establish communication with the coordination center and does not receive the fire command, they are not authorized to fire. This measure had been planned as another error prevention layer, which was not implemented either. The fourth link 
leading to the firing of the missile was now formed. I guess they're kind of changing my metaphor a little bit. They're actually creating links, yes. not deleting them. Oh, well. Um, at the time of well firing... Spotted. Pardon? Yeah. <laughs> well spotted. I was <laughs> going to mention it, but didn't mind. Yeah, thinking, wait a minute. Their, their metaphor is... Uh, 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 let's yeah, see. Revision. You've got, to break, you've got to break the chain to avoid yeah. the accident. In Iran, they do things differently, I guess. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, so where was I here? Um, at 2.44, no, no. Uh, at the time of right. firing the first missile, the aircraft was flying at a normal altitude and trajectory. The aircraft ATC transponder and ADSB signals were received properly. The missile uh, radio fuse was activated when the aircraft had reached the last position recorded by the dependent surveillance systems. The activation occurred at 2.44.59. Um, at 2.44.58, so like one second before, the last information received from the aircraft included the secondary surveillance radar, SSR transponder, and automatic dependent surveillance broadcast, ADSB. after which the receiving of such signals was terminated. This time corresponds to the first missile radio fuse activation. From then on, the aircraft position was only being recorded by the primary surveillance radar. So uh, believe it or not, it wasn't over. They actually ended up firing a second missile. Um, the um, first missile, though, uh, let's see, the evidence shows that at 246.11, a fire broke out on the aircraft, which was intensifying. At 248.23, the aircraft crashed into a playground near, uh, let's see, uh, in... Kalajabad. Kalajabad. Yeah. Oh, well, I said, should ask Rick. He's yeah. probably been there. Well, no, of course you haven't. That's uh, no, Iran. Haven't <laughs> well, you've been in that area. But you've seen been these kind of Been next door to Iraq, though, but yeah. then I haven't been to Iran. And that was near the what area, Rick? Kalajabad. Oh, no, but it was that's near Shahadashar. Shahadashar? Let me see here. Oh, Shahadashar. Let me see. Shahadashar. An explosion occurred the moment the aircraft impacted the ground. The aircraft then kept hitting the ground and bouncing mm -hmm. on a route towards the airport, making the aircraft pieces, victims' properties, objects, and body remains disintegrate oh, completely okay. in a vast area near a residential complex, recreational and sports park, gardens, and the surrounding agricultural land. Uh, this thing goes into a lot more detail about the missile and the fact that they think it uh, ended up um, firing or exploding or whatever, detonating about 50 feet right underneath uh, the cockpit area and sent out uh, shrapnel. Yeah, I, I think most anti-aircraft missiles are just, they're designed to, to do, do that. that. Is out the shrapnel and mm -hmm. yeah. just blows holes in the airplane. That was uh, what happened with uh, Malaysian, uh, that Malaysian 777. It was the yep. exact same uh, blast pattern. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not actually direct impact, but it's it's got a proximity sensor, whereas it, 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 it gets to a certain point, it just basically just blows up, and the shrapnel's what gets it. It's kind of like a torpedo so, uh, in the water. Where it gets close to the boat, mm -hmm. it'll activate underneath it. Oh, yeah, I remember when I used to be in the submarine, and we shoot those torn torpedoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The yeah, silent service, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I would imagine that's why, that's why he doesn't talk about it a lot. Just yeah. in the silent but deadly service. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Liz is saying something. Whoops. Okay, um, I'll have to uh, keep that in the show. Yeah, we'll we, that, you're yeah. you're going to be in the show, Liz. <laughs> uh, so, um, Nick, you're the only one here who has. Um, experience with uh, weapons such as these 
missiles that were fired. Uh, I know that the airplane, uh, the airplane launched missiles are probably a little bit different, but do they work in the, much the same way or do they, do they like explode or detonate near the target or do they um, actually hit the target or both? There are some that are designed as hitiles. So um, the early rapier system that the British Aerospace built, we used in our defenses, airfield defense systems, were basically kinetic missiles that were designed to strike and destroy, uh, but you had to hit the aircraft. Most missiles have a warhead, uh, and um, because you know you, you've got a blast radius uh, of a warhead of x feet depending on its size and the whether it's a shrapnel or it's uh, an expanding rod style of um, a destruction device uh, then as long as the missile gets within the, per, the the diameter or the parameters of that warhead yeah that's all it needs so it'll have a contact uh, fuse it'll have a proximity fuse it'll have various ways uh, of detonating uh, as it goes past but the idea is that, yeah, uh, it doesn't take much, really. If you've got a high-speed missile, it doesn't take a huge uh, amount of explosive to spread shrapnel out. And, of course, the velocity of the shrapnel hitting something as delicate as an aircraft, it'll just go straight through the skin and hit vital components, and away you go. Uh, pilots, of course, being some of the vital components. Mm -hmm. I was surprised at how small those little pieces of shrapnel were i mean they were not even uh, like uh not even a centimeter um in in dimension uh, in a couple of the dimensions very tiny yeah uh it, it if they if it's a decent missile system it'll be coming at it quite fast so i guess the um, the total kinetic energy it imparts uh, uh, is proportional um so yeah the and some missiles are obviously better than others. The uh, the old um, Russian missiles used to be huge and have huge warheads uh, because they weren't very well guided. Uh, the more precise the guidance, uh, the um, closer it can afford to get, the smaller the warhead, actually, so that it travels faster and is more effective. Mm. Um, but uh, I... A radar-guided missile can be any aspect, and uh, it, it sounds like this was a radar-guided missile. Heat seekers will tend to home in on warm spots, not just the engines. You can get enough heat usually from the airframe nowadays. And, of course, some uh, infrared-guided missiles actually use a, a matrix. Uh, imagine uh, a camera uh, and all the pixels there. Uh, you can fit that inside a missile. And some of them are sophisticated enough to uh, actually look at the uh, image of the aircraft that it's homing in on and decide whether it's enemy or friendly. Uh, some of them are that clever. Um, oh, wow. Um, what surprises me about this system is that uh, the aircraft obviously had its transponder going and was even broadcasting ADSB, um, but the missile operator didn't have that information on his scope so there's a huge disconnect there i mean the aircraft's transmitting something that will identify it and the guy with the deadly system isn't able to receive it or isn't using it i mean what's that about that they might not have that technology just due to embargoes and everything on iran it might be an older system you know from 70s well, or 80s well, it's, it's, it's it's usually it's, it's a defense against shooting down your own aircraft yeah. Uh, so 
you know, everybody has that kind of a system. Uh, well, you would, you, you would hope they would. <laughs> Otherwise, you end up gauging your own Air Force by accident, which yeah. is kind of kind of stupid. Yeah, I know. No, I was gonna I was gonna ask Nick as well because uh, uh, I mean, what's the point of IFF? You know, identify identify friend or foe if if, if you can't use it, and uh, that that AD is B. Exactly right. No, I, I have no ADSB. idea why uh, why it wasn't integrated into the uh, missile operator system. Um, perhaps he relied on his chain of command to identify the aircraft for him and just told him what to shoot at. And when that yeah, broke except, down, except he didn't get any yeah. response. No, exactly. And then when that chain of command broke down. It yeah, could be just, too, um, since his azimuth was off, it might have, the readout might not be the same because he was looking in the wrong area. So it's not going to give him the readouts he was expecting. Maybe it was like a setting issue because of that. I can see that he, the geometry of the approaching aircraft was wrong because they hadn't uh, recalibrated the screen to, to, to north. It was still on its previous, the, the setting had it at its previous location. Um, but that shouldn't affect uh, what the target emits as yeah, the way of true. identifying signals. So. Yeah. And I'm thinking uh, that if that were actually the case, what you just said, they probably would have mentioned it in the, uh, yes, yeah, in the report. That's, that's so. true. Anyway, a whole bunch of um, breakdowns yeah. and procedures and communications. I'll tell you what really surprises me, uh, actually, is that Iran is putting up its hand and saying, we made we a up. fatal mistake and shot down a civil airliner. And mm -hmm. they're more or less explaining how the mistake happened. And they're being surprisingly open about it. Uh, that does yeah. me. That is surprising. That really that is. is surprising. Yeah. All right. Well, that's still an uh, updated preliminary report. So hopefully it sounds like they're being very transparent about this. We'll get to actually see the final report at some point, hopefully soon. Anything else to say before we move on? Uh, no. All right. I think we're done. B. Um, this is from flightglobal.com. Uh, dual control inputs from a Condor Airbus three A320s pilots badly obstructed its response to collision avoidance orders during a low-altitude conflict, investigators have determined. The incident culminated in a serious air proximity encounter and a terrain alert shortly after departure from Kavala, or Kavala, I don't know, Kavala, maybe? Sure. Airport in Greece? Yeah, Kavala. Kavala, okay. And this happened uh, in 2018 on the uh, 16th of August. After the aircraft lifted off from the runway 23 left bound for Munich, it turned right over the coast to head for the Xeris 1C northwest outbound track. The A320 was cleared to climb to 24,000 feet, but the first officer who was flying saw a conflicting aircraft, a Hughes 369HS uh, helicopter on the collision avoidance system display immediately after the turn, and both pilots tried to establish visual contact. As the aircraft climbed through 2635 feet, still approaching the shoreline, the collision avoidance system instructed the crew to maintain its 1800 foot per minute vertical speed. But, and here's the problem, the first mm -hmm. officer did not follow this instruction, and that's a very dangerous thing. Uh, says the Greek Transport Ministry's Investigation Authority, instead commanding nose down and reducing the climb rate to 1100 feet per minute. This rate continued to decline to 500 feet per minute as the aircraft passed 2,730 feet. The collision avoidance system reversed its instruction and ordered the crew to descend. The first officer initially responded with a nose up input. <laughs> Oops, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, before quickly switching to nose down, at which point the captain also applied nose down input. 
without first following the procedure to take over control. Hmm, that's that's important. You have to, if you're going to activate the controls, you have to let the other person know that you are taking over control. As a result, says the inquiry, the first officer did not realize the aircraft was responding to dual command inputs. Yes, yeah, very important in a Airbus, right, Nick? When you have uh, yeah, if both of you do something with the stick, the control inputs are summed, uh, so that if you push forward and he pulls back. They're summed. You get a positive against a negative. Nothing happens. If you both push forward, it will give you twice the amount of input that you expected because you're summing nose forward, which is why it's vital that you decide who's in control of the airplane. And if there's any doubt, there's a big red button on top of the stick. As soon as you press that, it cuts out the stick on the other side of the cockpit. And it's pretty obvious when you're both putting control puts input because a big loud voice shouts dual input and, uh, you know, the arrows go in which way. Um, so uh, I'm. this is just one of many mistakes uh, which indicates to me that the training in this company or the training that was being displayed here was really not of a high standard. I mean, I tell you, and, and on the Boeing side of things, we don't have any, you know, fancy buttons or sticks or anything like that. You can, you have this big, you know, uh, yoke in front of you and you can see exactly what the guy next to you is doing. And uh, that, that's, that's nice. Uh, obviously, if you see that he's pushing down, you first smack him upside the head and, uh, you know, take controls and well, uh, it's, 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 it's easy enough easy, Rick. we're, oh, we're going to see an incident very shortly oh, where a bloke stalled the aircraft and the guy beside him said he had no idea what the guy was doing and that was in a conventional yoked control system so oh but, but, but i know i know yeah, but, but you but you can tell you can see you can see what i'm talking about here is that uh, both the autopilot and flying manually, you can see which way the yoke is going. Not, 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 not so if, much in an Airbus. If you're paying attention to it, uh, no. if you're paying attention to it, yeah. But exactly. there are plenty of accidents where the people have even fought over the controls. And oh, absolutely, you know, absolutely. And they're and, uh, the, and the controls are designed to to you know to break free one from another if one of them gets yeah. jammed. Absolutely right. But so uh, what I'm saying is, uh, I, I don't want to go into the the pros and cons of side sticks because we've discussed that many times. Mm -hmm. Let's do it, it again. Works, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it works fine if you uh, you know how to fly your airplane. That's mm -hmm. the problem here, not the airplane. And it's we all the know guys that who are flying it. All of our training, regardless of what kind of airplane you're flying, when you have a TCAS system installed and it's telling you to do something, it is critical that you follow yeah. what it's telling you because it's also talking possibly to the other aircraft and they're going, they were trusting, are going to follow the commands that they're given and there's going to be a nice safe resolution right because that's that's what that's what tcas i mean tcas traffic collision avoidance system <clears throat> they they talk to each other so they yeah. have to i mean one system coordinates with the other system and if, if you're commanded a climb then the other the other system's commanding a descent to the other crew to keep you um you know away from each other and this is something that we practice in simulators all the time uh, uh it's and then the procedure itself it's 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 straightforward enough where you you know disconnect the autopilot disconnect the auto throttle you take manual control of the airplane and all you do is you just you just uh, you're going to have um, symbology show up in your primary flight display or, or uh, additive direction indicator, whatever it is, or sometimes on your on the older systems on just 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 on your uh, your your vertical speed indicator, your VSI. And the idea is to keep the 
keep the uh, your position or or your your vertical speed needle out of the red area and into the green area. It just it's just simple as that. You just keep it there, and that's gonna that is going to uh, guarantee uh, uh, to keep you uh, away from the other conflicting aircraft because whatever you're doing, the other guy's doing the opposite of you know, what you're doing. So yeah, and it's, it's easy to interpret in the Airbus because. It's demanding a rate of climb and descent, and there on the rate of climb and descent indicator on the side of the uh, um, uh, flight director screen, uh, there is your needle, and that's where the color change occurs. So mm -hmm. you basically just put the, your uh, RCDI needle into the green, You uh, and it's just so simple to interpret. Um, so I have a question for uh, Nick. Um, the So you're getting the uh, TCAS system using the speakers to uh, warn you of traffic and directing you to you know monitor vertical speed or increase the rate of climb or descent we all know that voice um, the oral alert with the dual input would that be would you also hear that at the same time or would one of those be muted I don't think they're muted. Uh, I don't know if they're sequenced or whether uh, one on top of the other because I've never been in that situation, never okay. asked, had to ask that question. Uh, they may have a priority. Because um, I've been in situations in the simulator where, you know, one system, normally you would hear a, an oral alert for whatever is happening, but then another system is also at the same time putting out an oral alert and there are, you know, uh, I guess priorities involved with what you hear and what you don't. Yeah. Uh, I, my, my gut feeling tells me that you would hear them both. Okay. Uh, but it mm. may be that you would, I mean, they obviously don't blare out con constantly, certainly a TCAS. It gives you mm. warning. Then there's a gap and it might be in that gap that you get the other warnings, but I suspect you'd hear them both, and it would be just like two people shouting at you. Better work out what they're saying. Yeah, but you know, I have that happen to me all the time. People yelling at me at least two or three at a time. Yeah. Uh, and Al, Al's asking if if uh, uh, do any of the Boeing's do an auto TCAS avoidance? And no, on on Boeing airplanes, uh, TCAS avoidance is a manual maneuver, strictly manual maneuver. And Same that's, thing on that's, the McDonnell uh, Douglases. Yeah, the way you did the way you go is you know autopilot, auto throttle. And uh, just you know, uh, manually fly the maneuver until you uh, until you're clear of conflict. Then uh, then you reautomate. I, I was just going to add one more thing. You know, um, it's, it's it, this could all be prevented too if you just follow your SOPM and do positive exchange of controls. You know, that would help avoid a lot of these issues with TCAS and dual inputs and other and incidents other, too. I'm sure. Yeah, other yeah. situations where it's vitally important that. If somebody is taking control, like the captain, that he announces that he's taking control, that he's taking control. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, very important. Oh, or absolutely. you could go with Dana's practice and just carry your baseball bat and not the guy yeah, out that, too. Does he take full? Like, does he carry a full size I, baseball bat? I, I, I don't think Maybe so. I, he said it's like one of those mini ones, collapsible. Okay, <laughs> yeah, collapsible. You know, like a baton. <laughs> <laughs> Because I flew in your flight bag. I flew with Dana, you know, when he was uh, a first officer, and I don't recall ever seeing the baseball. I must have been doing okay. He didn't have to hit me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I guess we should continue with the story, huh? Um, yeah. Well, basically, uh, they didn't hit the uh, helicopter. Uh, well, no, there's actually much more to this here. Um, let's see. 
Okay, I think you're right there. Uh, after, uh, as as Nick mentioned, Airbus uh, flight control logic sums dual inputs from the pilot side sticks, and this increased the A320's descent rate because they were both pushing down or forward. The first officer then attempted to reduce the nose down attitude because he believed the intruding helicopter was beneath the A320, and because being unaware of the captain's inputs, he was also confused by the aircraft's response to his side stick. And with the aircraft at 2,763 feet, the helicopter at 2,869, so the helicopter was actually above them. The collision avoidance system ordered an increased rate of descent. The first officer again initially gave a nose up command, followed by a nose down, while the captain applied a nose down. The combined... This guy was a pilot, wasn't he? Uh, I'm yeah, not sure. What it says. <laughs> well, we're going to find out uh, in another story in the news uh, notebook here that uh, doesn't always guarantee the guy sitting in a seat in an airliner doesn't always guarantee that they are good at it. Mm-hmm. So, um, the combined nose down inputs of the pilots generated a high negative G load, prompting the first officer to react with a nose up command. At their closest point, the two aircraft were separated by 208 feet vertically, that's close, and less than 550 feet horizontally. That's very, very close. Weather conditions were good at the time. Neither pilot recalled whether the aircraft's automated systems signaled a dual input input warning. The overall average result of the summed inputs from the pilot's commands had led the aircraft to descend, but as it neared 2,400 feet, the pilots received a terrain caution indicator from the ground proximity warning system because the jet was losing height as it neared a mountain ridge rising to 3,000 feet. Yikes. According to the captain's Mm -hmm. testimony, he immediately declared that he was taking control of the aircraft. Should have done that before. Engaged go around thrust and pitched the aircraft 11 degrees nose up. Within a few seconds of the terrain caution, there were no further inputs from the first officer. Investigators state that the helicopter pilot had not complied with its authorized altitude of 2,500 feet. But they point out that the first officer's response to the collision avoidance system was not in accordance with its instructions and says the captain's unexpected intervention complicated the situation. Condor should underline to pilots the importance of following the correct procedure for taking over control, the inquiry recommends. Well, there you go. There you go. Simple as that. Now, I've never thought of Condor as a fly-by-night operation. You know, I've always considered them to be on a par with uh, Lufthansa. They're you know well recognized and uh, usually they have a great reputation. This really surprises me. Yeah. This incident, I, I'm quite taken aback by it. Mm. Me too. All right. Well, we can all learn from that, right? Um. C. An incident from this is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, an ERA or ERA? Uh, uh, ERA Alaska. ERA? Yeah, mm. which is uh, Raven, I think. Okay. Yeah, Raven Airlines. Uh, DH 8A 8 near Anchorage. This is all the way back in September of 2012. An uncommanded left roll and loss of altitude. Um, Let's see. They were performing flight 874 from Anchorage to Homer with 12 passengers and three crew climbing through 12,000 feet out of Anchorage when the aircraft entered an uncommanded roll to the left and began to lose altitude. The crew was able to regain control of the aircraft about 7,000 feet and return to Anchorage for a safe landing about 40 minutes after departure. The NTSB reported the incident occurred in instrument meteorological conditions. In other words, they were in the clouds. An investigation has been opened on July 9th. 2020, so not too long ago, 
the NTSB released their final report concerning the probable cause of the incident was an in-flight loss of control due to the due to the flight crew's inattention to airspeed pitch attitude and engine power. <laughs> All the control instruments here during the climb leading to an aerodynamic stall. Actually, I should I should correct myself here. Let me get back up again above 50%. Not all of those things are control. Airspeed is not. That's a performance instrument, but uh, pitch attitude and engine power are control. Uh, contributing to the incident was the flight crew's failure to recognize and proper, properly recover from an aerodynamic stall in a timely manner. Um, so uh, first of all, they start off by the NTSB uh, kind of spanks them a little bit, complaining that the cockpit voice recorder present on board uh, the aircraft did not comply with the regulations requiring two hours of recording. Um, the FAA had been unaware of this. Uh, well, obviously they were aware that it has to have two hours. It's just they were unaware that this airplane yeah. didn't have that capability. The lack of CVR recording impaired the investigation and did not permit uh, to determine whether the stick shaker had activated during the event as the flight data recorder did not record that parameter of stick shaker activation. The crew reported the stick shaker did not activate during the event. The sequence of events, so hang on folks, it's going to be a bumpy ride. During the climb to 10,000 feet, flight data recorder sh uh, data showed, oh that's kind of a FDR, flight data recorder data <laughs> show that the flight maintained about 90% torque and 150 knots, which was consistent with company procedures. The captain stated the airplane encountered icing conditions between seven and 8,000 feet, at which time he turned on all of the de-icing equipment, which, uh, which both flight crew members stated was working properly. When the captain leveled the airplane at 10,000 feet, the planned cruise altitude, he reduced power from a climb setting of 90% of maximum torque to about 70% of maximum torque. At the time, the indicated airspeed was 170 knots. Shortly thereafter, the flight crew requested and received a clearance from ATC to maintain a block altitude of 10 to 14,000 feet to avoid continued icing conditions. The captain stated that he did not adjust the power when he began the climb, hmm. which is odd, uh, which flight data recorder uh, data confirmed. The captain believed he engaged the indicated airspeed mode of the autopilot. When he began the climb, however, if the captain had used the IAS indicated airspeed mode at the reduced power setting, the airplane would likely not have climbed. Yeah, right. Yep. IAS, you push the power up and it starts Come climbing. Yep. You pull it back, starts descending. Okay, I'm trying to maintain uh, what we call that called speed on pitch uh, instead of speed on power, right? Or there's something. Yeah, it's the first one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm saying in this case it was oh, yeah, yeah. as the opposed opposite, to yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Both pilots stated in interviews that climbing in the vertical speed mode of the autopilot was engaged was not, if the autopilot was engaged, is not recommended, and they did not recall selecting the autopilot vertical speed mode. Specifically, the uh, ERA Aviation Flight Operations Training Procedure. Procedures, FOTP, stated that pamphlet? the- Pamphlet? Uh, pamphlet? <laughs> They only get a pamphlet. <laughs> wow. Oh, no wonder. Uh, priest. It's uh, the flight oper operations training priest. Oh, oh. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. Okay. Does he have to travel with them at the tower? Does oh, okay. Nobody blesses them before they get over. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, he well, that guy stated that the vertical speed mode should not be used for sustained sustained climb if the autopilot was engaged since the airspeed was not protected and a stall may occur. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a, if you're not a pilot, maybe, but if you're a pilot, you should be 
aware of all these speed. Yeah. Uh, uh, get off the soapbox, right? Um, no, dude, I'm going to jump on it in a second. Okay. Uh, Join you there. <laughs> okay. Well, here, yeah, let me make some room for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big soapbox we uh, use here at the APG. Uh, let's see. Despite this guidance, the flight crew's apparent aware and the flight crew's apparent awareness of it, data showed that the flight began a steady climb of 850 feet per minute, which was consistent with the captain selecting the vertical speed mode. Because the airplane began to climb steadily without the addition of power, yeah, because you're telling it to, right? Uh, the pitch attitude began to increase and the indicated airspeed began to decrease. Recorded data showed that over the same interval, the airplane pitch attitude increased from 3 degrees airplane nose up at 10,000 feet to 14 degrees wow, airplane nose up at 12,000 feet and that the airspeed decreased from 170 to 103 knots, the speed at which the airplane stalled. Wow, that's a 14 degrees. I don't know. I've never flown the Dash 8, but that seems like a lot of pitch. I mean, I, I think anybody would say that 14 degrees, you're going to notice that pretty quickly, I think. I mean. Well, you should. Yeah. Well, yeah, should. As noted previously, in addition to airspeed indicators, orange speed control indicators providing fast slow indications were installed in the captain's and first officer's ADIs on the instrument panel directly, directly in front of both pilots. The speed control indicators depicted airspeed relative to 1.3 V stall and would have moved into the slow region of the indicator as the airspeed dropped below 116 knots. Given that the pitch attitude is a primary control indication and airspeed is a primary performance indication, both pilots, the pilot flying and the pilot monitoring, should have been cross-checking, that is, continuously and logically observing the instruments for attitude and performance information. Yes, that's what pilots do. Both indications frequently. However, both pilots reported they were not aware of the changes in pitch, attitude, or airspeed. Hmm. What are they looking at? What, what's going on here? Let me look out the window at the cloud. Oh, look, it's pretty. Oh, cloud. It looks like a like a, a like a big bear. If you read this in the newspaper, good lord! If you seen what the president's done again? Oh, I know. Here, let me look at that. Here, <laughs> let's don't. None of us look at the instruments and see what's going on with the airplane. <laughs> Uh, the captain stated that during the climb out of uh, 10,000 feet, he was monitoring the icing situation outside the airplane. He described the icing conditions as, quote, the high end of moderate. And he stated that they needed to avoid those conditions to continue the flight. When the airplane began to break out of the clouds at an altitude uh, about 11,500 feet, the captain decided to level off at 12,000, and he began monitoring the autopilot as it captured that altitude. He stated that he thought the airspeed was 150 to 160 knots, but he did not recall looking at the airspeed indicator or the fast-slow indication on the ADI. What are we looking at, Captain? The first mm -hmm. officer stated that normally the pilot flying would specify the climb speed, but he did not recall if the captain did so, and he could not remember what the airspeed was in the climb. He said he was busy taking care of paperwork and charts, preparing to communicate with the destination station, looking outside, focusing on the icing conditions, making sure the de-ice boots were inflating, and seeing whether the airplane was shedding ice or not. As the pilot monitoring, the first officer was responsible for watching the primary instrument indications and ensuring that the airplane was maintaining the appropriate climb airspeed. However, he stated that he could not recall what the indications were on the instrument panel before the stall, but that he thought that the airspeed was about 150 knots before the upset. He was wrong. The pilots allowed the airspeed to drop to stall speed because the captain failed to set climb power when... He inappropriately selected the autopilot vertical speed mode for climb, and both pilots were preoccupied with other duties and were not watching their airspeed or attitude indicators during the climb. So, 
we move on now to the airplane stalling. As the airplane began to level off at 12, the airplane began to shudder. The flight crew stated that they attributed, attributed the shudder to an unbalanced condition of the propellers due to uneven ice shedding. Both pilots stated that they had experienced similar ice shedding on their previous flight. Neither pilot associated the vibrations they felt as an approach to an aerodynamic stall. Flight data recorder data indicated that the airplane was experiencing an aerodynamic pre-stall buffet. However, neither pilot recognized the buffet as an indication that the airplane was about to stall. Hmm. No recorded data was available to confirm a stall warning, but according to the pilots, the stick shaker did not activate at the time the airplane began to lose lift, which, according to FDR data, the airplane performance and the airplane performance study occurred at 1048.18 as the airplane was climbing through 12,192 feet at 103 knots. Flight data recorder showed the control column moving aft from 3 degrees to 8.5, uh, beginning at the time of the loss of lift consistent with the autopilot control. This was followed by autopilot disconnection and continued rapid aft movement of the control column to 33 degrees within the next three seconds. They uh, obviously thought they were in some kind of a fighter aircraft. Mm. 33 degrees? Yeah. No. Okay. Aerodynamic stall recovery requires the pilot to reduce the airplane's angle of attack by pushing the nose down so that the proper airflow across the wing and control surfaces can be restored. Therefore, the captain's aft movement of the control column was an inappropriate response to the stall and impeded its recovery. Very polite. Yes. Yeah. You really mucked. Uh, and You can substitute that with any consonant you'd like. The, mm -hmm. uh, really mucked it up. The uh, flight data recorder also showed the airplane began a left roll five seconds after the initial loss of lift, and then the roll coincided, coincided with the autopilot disconnection. Following the left roll, pitch decreased from 20 degrees nose up to 37 degrees nose down. It was must have been quite a ride for yep. those passengers. The captain stated that he attempted to control the airplane by rolling its wings, uh, rolling it to wings level, pulling the nose up, but he was unable to regain control. Yeah, because the yeah. airplane's not flying. The wings <laughs> don't have any flow. Uh, flight data recorded data indicated the captain held the control column aft to more than 33 degrees for 16 seconds during the descent, oh. and that he did not attempt to push the nose over for another seven seconds after relieving back pressure. The captain stated that during the descent, he made a combination of control and power inputs, pushing the yoke and power forward and back. <laughs> okay. Do what? some of that pilot shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Push the buttons, pull the levers. <laughs> Maybe this will work. The captain's statements were confirmed by flight data recorder data. Following the initial roll, engine torque on both engines decreased to about 30%. So the response to the stall was to pull the power pull back. Pull the power back. And subsequently increased to over 100% twice, exceeding the torque limitations on the engines. The captain stated he did not recall seeing any speed during the event as he never once looked at the airspeed indicator. <laughs> As the airspeed increased above 160 knots during the descent, pitch began to increase and the airplane leveled off at an altitude of about 7,072 feet. Oh, well, you know, we can continue on, but this is pretty painful. Um, wow. So uh, here in summary, the captain's response to the aerodynamic Aerodynamic stall delayed the recovery of the airplane, right? Yes. Pulling back on the column and reducing engine power kept the airplane from achieving the necessary angle of attack for airflow and lift to be restored. Yes. yes. Without awareness of the airplane's airspeed and pitch attitude as the airplane approached the stall, the captain did not recognize the pre-stall buffet when it occurred. 
Once the aircraft was fully stalled, he held inappropriate nose-up pitch control, reduced power actions which exacerbated the stall, and contributed to the flight's significant altitude loss. The first officer stated that when the airplane pitched over, his hands were not on the controls and he did not know what control inputs the captain made. Okay, here's an example of a, you know, a conventional yoke, and he was not aware of what mm. control inputs the captain's making. I don't know what he's looking at or whether he increased or decreased power. He said he thought first thought they should get the nose down, but then thought if they had a tail icing event, that pushing forward would be wrong. The first officer stated in subsequent interviews that he did not think they had tail icing, but his initial confusion about whether the flight was experiencing an aerodynamic stall or a tail stall may have caused him to hesitate in responding. When asked as pilot monitoring what instrument he should monitor to assist the pilot flying in recovering from a stall, he replied, airspeed, but he could not recall what the airspeed was during the event. He also could not recall the position of the fast-slow speed control indicator. As the pilot monitoring, the first officer could have called out airspeed and the position of the fast-slow speed control indicator, and he could have directed the captain to apply and maintain nose-down pitch to aid in the stall recovery. However, the first officer was surprised by the airplane's loss of control and did not provide any useful assistance to the captain during the recovery. Hmm. Very nice. Wow. Okay, let me uh, I'm move glad off. they had the altitude to do this. You know? Oh, no yeah. kidding. Yeah. Oh, you're quite the, right, Rick. They lost 5,000 5, feet. They lost in that storm. Yeah. And that, uh, well, good thing they had the altitude and good thing that uh, they uh, they didn't happen to run into uh, any uh, cumul of granites uh, up there because there's uh, quite a bit of those up in Alaska. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, we really lucked out here. Well, I'm going to step off this uh, or step aside and uh, make room for Captain Nick to come up here on the soapbox. <laughs> yeah, uh, th this was all initiated by something I hated uh, in my company, uh, and it was frequently uh, done, which was to use the autopilot uh, climbing uh, in um, vertical speed mode. Uh, and for an extended length of time and often at very high altitudes when your performance is really quite small. Um, you know, engine power, uh, the thinness of the air, et cetera. Um, uh, you've really got to keep a very close eye, and people don't realize, but when you're in vertical speed mode, the autopilot will make the airplane climb at what you've asked it to, that vertical speed, and it will give away everything else. Uh, it'll give away your airspeed, as it did in this aircraft, to the point where the airplane stalls. And it was exacerbated in this case because the captain had left cruise power on. He hadn't pushed the throttles forward to give himself enough thrust. But even in, a, in our aircraft, admittedly, all the protections of the Airbus would stop you from stalling the airplane. It, it would have got to a really nasty situation, but it would never have actually stalled. But You'd never want to do that because while you're watching everything that's going on, fine. But it only takes something to distract you, mm -hmm. uh, something that suddenly needs doing elsewhere. And because not much else is going on, you take your eyes off the flight instruments and you start attending to something else, even something as stupid as the cockpit door opening and the cabin crew coming in. Pretty girl with a nice cup of tea starts to engage you in conversation. And the next thing you know, uh, the airplane is getting slower and slower and slower. And that's how you start getting in this position. So I used to, I didn't used to lose my cool, but I really used to try and encourage first officers that I flew with to not 
use this particular method of climbing the airplane. It has its time and place, but it's not something they would do commonly, although some, I don't know what kind of a background they came from, where they were trained to do it, would use it incessantly. And it, it kind of used to get me. I said, it's, it's all fine and beautiful while we're both paying attention, but it doesn't take much to distract us and end up in this kind of a situation. That's my soapbox. No, it's true, and I agree with I agree with you, Nick. There, the, uh, the vertical speed mode is 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 a uh, it's a valid mode of the you know, automatic flight director system. That's why it's there. It's got a it's got a time and place to be used. And uh, um, again, it's one of those modes where, if, like Nick just said, yeah, I mean, if you're not paying attention to it, it can really can really bite you. Um, the thing with the vertical speed is, uh, as we've seen, uh, as we as we saw here, uh, it, it really doesn't protect your speed because, yeah, like what, like exactly what Nick said, it, it's you, you ask the plane to climb at at a certain vertical speed uh, velocity per minute, and that's what that's what it's going to do. It doesn't protect you, um, doesn't protect the speed. Now, if you usually the way vertical speed or, or at least the way i use vertical speed sometimes is in the in the terminal in the terminal area um to make controlled controlled descent of no more than a thousand to fifteen hundred feet a minute to make it a constant descent or sometimes i'll use it for uh for uh, a deceleration uh, for the a deceleration uh, portion of the flight it, it 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 comes in quite handy when you're coming in in flight level change or open descent for airbus or clamp mode for uh, for for uh, the mad dogs there you know, once you select that mode the autopilot is going to select the pitch for that airspeed right and so if you're if you select 250 knots or you, if you select 300 knots and you've pressed flight level change the airplane's going to pitch to maintain the 300 knots and so usually what I'll do is once I'm at about uh, 11,000 feet I'll press vertical speed select a, select about a 300 or 200 foot a minute descent and then dial the speed back to 250 and then the airplane's going to pitch up to give me that 200 foot a minute or 300 foot a minute descent and then that levelish sector of the flight's going to bleed the airspeed quite rapidly to get to 250 and then i'll re-engage 250 uh flight level change to re-engage that uh, mode of the autopilot and continue the descent at 250 so there's a time and a place for it it's certainly not uh certainly not in the uh in the mid 30s the high 30s certainly because it's, it's really at that point your 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 through your thrust to thrust to weight uh it's, it's it's really not where you want it to be uh because uh, as nick said if you command a thousand foot a minute climb the engines are going to give it all they have and that might not even be enough to give you the climb that you request and so the air speed's going to bleed and we know what happened we know how hard it is to recover that airspeed once you're up in the uh, once you're up at altitude yeah no good point get the wrong side of the drag curve which is why we mm -hmm. use this phrase so much uh, and you you can't accelerate the airplane. There's not enough thrust left in the engine. So the only way to get back to a situation where you're above your main drag speed is to sacrifice altitude. Now, you gotta descend, um, exactly. yeah, uh, which is really not what you want to do because the up passengers get upset because the champagne might spill. Uh, <laughs> but you're right. There are places when I would always use it, and one would be an initial climb out when you've got more thrust than you really need. 
but uh, you're approaching another aircraft that's above you and you don't want to hurtle up to him at two and a half, three thousand feet a minute because you'll activate his TCAS warning. Exactly right. So that's another you, reason why. You, yeah, select vertical speed and moderate your rate of climb so that you climb and pass underneath him without any shouts from oh, traffic, traffic, you know, uh, and getting everyone upset. It, you know. So the time and the place, but this, this, was not a time nor a place. <laughs> right. You have to be aware that yeah. when you are transitioning to that mode that you have lost some protections. And uh, that's, yeah. you know, exactly what, right. what happened here. And I uh, hypothetically remember a story that somebody told me about maybe a good friend of mine uh, in a very large airplane, uh, L-1011, uh, where the captain was uh, primary or the uh, pilot flying and we were climbing out of dallas fort worth heading to los angeles avoiding thunderstorms and you know he was head outside and you know maneuvering the airplane using the autopilot and vertical speed and the uh auto throttles were basically commanding maximum uh climb thrust and I was watching the airspeed as pilot monitoring is supposed to and I noticed that the air and I could just <laughs> If you've been flying these airplanes for a while, you can just, a good pilot can feel it without even mm -hmm. looking at the instruments. You can sense yeah. when the energy of the airplane is getting, it, something's not quite right. And I was looking at it and I'm thinking, yeah, this is not going to work because if he continues to hold this kind of a pitch and climb rate, and now we're like transitioning to the um, low 30s, mid 30s, uh, this is not mm -hmm. going to, it's not going to be a good situation. And I mentioned it to the captain saying i mean not me my friend told me that he mentioned it to his captain <laughs> that uh he needed to be careful because the airspeed was dropping off and and the captain acknowledged that fact but really didn't make a big effort to adjust the vertical speed and before this person had a chance to remind the captain once more one more time he decided instead to make a radio call to uh, Fort Worth Center and requested a lower altitude because this person knew that the airplane was not going to be able to level off even at this energy state we had at this point. And we were going to be coming down whether we received clearance or not. Thankfully, I mean, they thankfully they did receive clearance <laughs> from Fort Worth Center to go back down to flight level 310 or let's see, east or west is even three, flight level well, at that time that we didn't have RVSM, so I think thirty-one uh, was what we were uh, assigned. Whatever it was, yeah. a day. And uh, well, I'm gonna have a lot of uh, a lot of editing to do here. No, I'm just gonna. Look. <laughs> yeah, of course, it was it was an experience that Disney I Disney don't listen to the show. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, so that's an that's a, an example. I mean, the, the entire time that Nick was talking about vertical speed and the fact that you have to, you know, be you know, mindful of your airspeed and energy. Yeah, you, I thought, oh yeah, that that uh, brought that person back to that that yeah. day back in the nineties. Yeah, and and you know what, it, it works the other way as well because if you are if you are in your in your in the cruise portion of the flight and you command a vertical speed descent, uh, yeah, the thrust levers are going to come back. But really, what's going to command that vertical speed is your pitch. And so your speed's going to start creeping up. And it's very, very easy if you're not paying attention 
to get into that area of overspeed. Overspeed. Yeah, it's very irritating. <laughs> so, so vertical speed yeah, is not is, is not a mode. It's it's not a mode that uh, that gives you any sort of protection on the high end of speed or the low end of speed. That's why you have to be on yeah, top of it true. when you're using it. So it's a. Uh, but that's the that's the only the, the mistake they used to kick this off. Having got to the position where he was barely over a hundred knots and stalling, neither of them were monitoring their flight instruments. Neither of them were had situational awareness of what the aircraft was doing. They were both distracted to the same problem. Are we getting a bit of icing on the wings here? It only needs one of you to look at. The other one flies the damned airplane. Or he looks out and the other guy monitors the airplane. You don't do the same job at the same time. If I'm concerned about icing, I would be concerned about my airspeed, wouldn't you? I mean, I, oh, yeah. I would, yeah. yeah. Like, who? Yeah. who's not... Why are you not looking and cross-checking your airspeed? That's just crazy. And, and Rick, Rick hit the nail on the head. Uh, as you were, or actually, sorry, it was you, Jeff. As as you approach low speed situation, your the hackles in the back of your neck start to go up because the noise has suddenly disappeared. It's gone yeah. very quiet. Mm-hmm. It does not normally this quiet. And if you're hand flying <laughs> the airplane, the controls are suddenly getting sloppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And there there are so many indications. And then you get Buffett. You, oh, geez, I would be going, whoa, let's do something about this. Uh, but they seem to be oblivious. And of course, the uh, for all of us, if you're getting that big buffet, the normal reaction is to pull the power back and to yank back the yoke. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, exactly. Push it real no, that's, good. Yeah, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to <laughs> yeah. do. Now, does anyone know this thing's got a T-tail, isn't it? Just, yeah, it does. Just, yeah, the dash, yeah, the dash shape. Yeah. Super stall. Can I get into a deep stall? I don't uh, know. Or... Does I, it have a stick pusher? Obviously not. Otherwise, the stick. No, it does. Pushed. Yeah. So they did. They didn't think it activated, yeah. but I bet it did. Um, yeah. Oh, I had a stick. I had a stick shaker. Oh, that's right. I doesn't have a stick pusher. Oh yeah, that's that's different. I well, don't ever had a stick pusher. No, I don't as think well. they do. Wait, if, if it's transport category, it's got to have a pusher, right? Not unless they. There are certain parameters. I think. That, yeah. Oh, maybe Rick knows yeah. the, the. Yeah, not not necessarily. It okay. depends, but not, I don't. I don't believe this one does have a. I don't believe okay. this one has a stick pusher. Okay. I don't. Well, I'm, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm somebody maybe in the, uh, in the chat room knows that I've never. I've never flown a turboprop, so I have no idea. I haven't either. Um, but I, I do want to say one thing. You know, we're we're talking about uses of vertical speed, and we use it on a regular basis at my airline and almost every phase of flight because of certain performance reasons, especially like on the 200, once you get above 20,000 and if you got anti-ice on, you can't leave it in climb and tell it to climb out because it'll just, it'll keep leveling off the build up at speed and you just can't maintain that 500 minute climb that ATC won't. So we use it for that. Um, and then on the seven and 900, the pressurization system can't keep up with the aircraft. So once you get above, I believe it's 30, you got to put it in vertical speed and keep it at 1500 feet. A minute so we use it a pretty good bit and i, I mean i mean i i've lost track of time because you get the briefing something um and then the other guy usually will catch it or I've, i did the same thing i mean but it's such a thing at my airline that we use it that we're because if someone's doing something else somebody's watching their speed to make sure that you don't get below the bug and get into that situation that these guys did and i mean that's really what it comes down to is somebody needs to keep their eye on the you know what the aircraft's doing at all times somebody's got to mind the store yep exactly right yeah yep uh, so it, it not only that he got himself into a stall and then didn't recognize it and then did the uh, completely appropriate actions uh pulling the throttle back and pulling the stick back 
just make the situation worse. And as Rick said earlier, he was so lucky he had the height to get out of this uh, without hitting the ground. Otherwise, uh, it would be a lesson we would still learn, but he wouldn't. I don't know if he's still flying again. Perhaps not. Yeah, so it would uh, have become a switch from an incident to an accident. Yeah, exactly right. Mm. All right. Well, so um, I'm thinking that we'll skip uh, item D because I really want to get to the last item in the news folder before we move on to um, getting to know us uh, section of the or segment of the show. Uh, so item E, uh, yesterday the National Transportation Safety Board had a public board meeting, uh, kind of a Zoom meeting kind of thing. Um, many of you out there uh, perhaps uh, had a chance to listen to it. <laughs> Stephen and I kind of had a chance to listen to the first, uh, what, 10 to 15 minutes? Uh, actually, almost two hours worth. No, I'm talking oh. about when we were in the car, oh, when yeah. it was actually yeah, happening. Yeah, like five minutes, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> we kind of lost... Uh, we were in the coach. valley of death. Yes, yeah. the valley of death. Um, anyway. Uh, did you see the 500? Into the valley of death rode the 500. Oh, I don't uh, know what that's uh, referring to. That's referring to the charge of the light brigade. Oh, no. Oh, no, no you, would, you guys would know about that. wasn't uh, even really I, not sure what uh, I'd be looking for. It was there. a famous poem. About oh, okay. In, into the Valley of Death Road, the 500. Oh, oh. yeah. Now I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Heathens. Sorry. I, I don't so know why I'm on this show. I don't know why you bothered <laughs> dealing with us, the unwashed deplorables. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. The uh, NTSB determined during a public board meeting held Tuesday that Atlas Air Flight 3591 crashed in Trinity Bay, Texas, because of the first officer's inappropriate response. Hmm. Kind of seems like a theme here. Yes. Uh, to an inadvertent activation of the airplane's go-around mode, resulting in his spatial disorientation that led him to place the airplane in a steep descent from which the crew did not recover. Uh, again, you'll remember this was uh, February of 2019 when Atlas Air's uh, Boeing 777 cargo jet entered a rapid descent from about 6,000 feet and impacted a marshy bay about 40 miles from Houston's George Bush Intercontinental Airport. The captain, first officer, and a non-rev jump seat pilot died in the crash. The airplane, which was carrying cargo from Miami to Houston uh, for Amazon.com services, uh, and the U.S. Postal Service was destroyed. The first officer was a pilot flying the airplane at the time of the incident. The NTSB also determined the captain's failure to adequately monitor the airplane's flight path and to assume positive control of the airplane to effectively intervene contributed to the crash. Also cited as a contributing factor is the aviation industry's selection and performance measurement practices that failed to address the first officer's aptitude-related deficiencies and maladaptive stress response. The NTSB concluded the first officer likely experienced a pitch-up somatographic illusion, a specific kind of spatial disorientation in which forward acceleration is misinterpreted as the airplane pitching up. As the airplane accelerated due to the inadvertent action 
activation of the go around mode, which prompted the first officer to push forward on the elevator control column. The first officer subsequently believed the airplane was stalling and continued to push the control column forward, exacerbating the airplane's dive. However, no clue, no cues consistent with an aerodynamic stall, such as a stick shaker activation, a stall warning or stall, stall warning enunciations, nose high pitch indications, or low airspeed indications were present. Additionally, the NTSB's airplane performance study found that the airplane's airspeed and angle of attack were not consistent with having been at or near a nose-high stalled condition. The first officer's response was contrary to standard operating or standard procedures and training for responding to a stall. Uh, the NTSB concluded that while the captain, as the pilot monitoring, was setting up the approach to Houston and communicating with air traffic control, his attention was diverted from monitoring the airplane's state and verifying that the flight was proceeding as planned. This delayed his recognition of and his response to the first officer's unexpected actions that placed the plane in a dive. Investigators also concluded that the captain's failure to command a positive transfer of control of the airplane as soon as he attempted to intervene on the controls enabled the first officer to continue to force the airplane plane into a steepening dive. While the first officer took deliberate actions to conceal the history of performance deficiencies, his performance deficiencies, Atlas's reliance on designated agents to review pilot background records and to flag significant concerns was inappropriate and resulted in the company's failure to evaluate the first officer's unsuccessful attempt to upgrade to captain at his previous employer. Additionally, the NTSB found that the FAA met the deadline and complied with the requirements Oh, no, that had the FAA met the deadline and complied with the requirements for implementing the pilot records database, uh, the PRD, I think they refer to it, as stated in Section 203 of the Airline Safety and Federal Aviation Administration Extension Act of 2010, the pilot records database would have provided hiring employers relevant information about the first officer's employment history and long history of training performance deficiencies. The uh, first officer in this incident deliberately concealed his history of performance deficiencies, which limited Atlas Air's ability to fully evaluate his aptitude and competency as a pilot, said NTSB Chairman Robert Sumwald. Therefore, today we are, we are recommending that the pilot records database include all background information necessary for a complete evaluation of a pilot's competency and proficiency. Um, they go on to talk about uh, the... Um, recommendations for getting this implemented quickly uh, because it's been taking way too long for them to implement. This is part of the, one of the outcomes of the uh, Colgan, uh, what, 3407 yep. crash in Buffalo. Um, one of the deficiencies that they noted at the time was the fact that uh, we don't really have a good system to kind of track uh, pilots, deficiencies and training and check rides and that sort of thing. And, um, it, it's still, believe it or not, it's crazy to me that that crash occurred in 2009. It's 2020. They still have not implemented this system and it's crazy. I mean, and they were saying it's going to be at least another uh, three years before it's, before it's fully functional. So, yeah. So this, wow. this was very, very sad. Um, yeah. so, very much indeed. It uh, looks like you know the the uh, they they go into much further detail, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this in the in the upcoming episodes as well as we get more information. The final report has not been uh, issued yet, but it is 
forthcoming soon. Uh, but apparently, uh, when the first officer was reaching uh, around to uh, to store or stow the uh, speed brakes, uh, the speed brake handle, uh, he may have inadvertently activated the go around switch, uh, which I believe Rick is on the left. Um, it's one on both sides. Oh, I is believe. It? Okay. So yeah, so the seven six and the seven five have the same throttle quadrant. Basically, what happens is that uh, the the takeoff go around mode, not 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 the takeoff go around, the go around mode is armed with uh, one of two conditions. Uh, either uh, the flaps are out of up, so when you go to flaps one, or you could be at flaps up and captured a uh, localizer and glide slope. So once you capture the glide slope portion of the ILS, it also arms the go around mode. Uh, and so uh, during the flight, as long as the go-around mode is not armed, the switches, there's two paddles in the back of uh, each um, uh, thrust lever, obviously the left and the right. Uh, the paddle on the le- on the left-hand side is there for the uh, captain's thumb. So it's basically thumb paddles. And the paddle on the right-hand side is for, for the first officer's thumb. So... Um, these by by the by the uh, first officer stowing the speed brake uh, back, uh, you know, it makes sense to me that he bumped that paddle with a part of his arm or wrist or whatever, causing the uh, go around mode to activate. And on the seven sixty seven, the uh, thrust doesn't go to full thrust. So really, what happens is that the 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 auto throttle uh, through the thrust management computer is going to command the amount of thrust required to give you a two thousand foot a minute climb. So that's really all it uh, all it commands. Now that thrust is going to be, um, uh, I guess, um, proportional to the pitch that you have. Uh, the lower the pitch, I guess, the more the thrust because it needs to get you to two thousand feet a minute. And so uh, when you fly a uh, an automatic go around, obviously the pitch is going to be right where it needs to be. To, uh, the thrust is going to be right where it needs to be to give you that 2,000 foot a minute climb. You can't go to full toga thrust on a 7.6 or a 7.5 by pushing that uh, that paddle. So that's apparently what happened since they he already had commanded flaps one. And then when he stowed him, hit the paddle, and then they activated the go around. And that's, uh, so was he stowing the... Uh... He was stowing the speed brake, but he had already got uh, called for the act or the uh, extension of the flaps. Um, flaps were at one. Yeah. yeah, so that's kind of. I think one of the things that they were discussing in the uh, briefing was the fact that they thought it was kind of unusual for them to have the flaps already at uh, one that far away from the airport. Yeah, I, I, I remember when we were watching it. That was one of the questions that somebody asked. Was I mean, is uh, that unusual? Uh, Rick? Yeah, not not necessary. Because, okay. I mean, uh, look, some people some people configure the airplane uh, different from others. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're new and you're green on the jet, uh, you kind of you kind of uh, which I, I believe this 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 guy was, um, and every other jet for that matter. Um, you tend to be uh, very conservative in the way you configure the airplane. The airplane, the 767 is no 74, obviously, but it's not a big, super big airplane, but it still has a, quite a bit of inertia. And energy management can be a little a little tricky um, to learn. Uh, and so you start slow, you give yourself room, give yourself a lot of margin. Um, usually, um, you start to you start to configure around uh, about 20. 20 miles out, something like that. Uh, when you get really good and comfortable at it, you can configure, you know, in as little as, you know, th- you know, 12 to 13 miles, sometimes 10 miles. 
But uh, that is if you have a a, a long enough um, uh, level flight portion to get to let that airspeed bleed. Now, the way I configure is really not based on my distance to the airport, but on my on my uh, vertical position to my glide path. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I do it. Uh, right. Now, uh, there's 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 instances when you can get to flaps one and uh, hold your airspeed a little high to let that that uh, that uh, the airplane pitch over to that you know 230 because flap one on the on six is 250 knots. So below 250, that's the placard speed. Below 250, you can go to flaps one. So you can go to flaps one and hold the speed at 240, and the airplane's going to pitch over at 240 knots and use that kind of like a speed brake. Now, the you, you can do that. And if you put speed brake out, you'll actually descend a little faster. And then once you get to the air, to the altitude where you want to be, then you'll dial the speed back, leave the speed brake out, and then the airplane will get uh, to, to, to the to the next uh, uh, speed for 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 the, to continue on configuring. But it's all in how you manage the airspeed, really. It's, it's really all it is. It's not really written on stone that you must go flaps one at twenty miles or anything like that. So. And you know, I'm sure a lot of us could say it also depends on where you're going, especially if you've been in there a lot of times, you kind of know what kind of instructions you're going to get and you're going to plan your configuration based on, you know, just mm-hmm. trial and error of you going into whatever airport you're going into. Yep. And so, and, it, and, and that goes for every airplane. I mean, yeah. I, I mean the, the time that I've flown into, the, the times that I've flown into Afghanistan are, are, are very high and hot and high airports like Mexico and Quito and Bogota and La Paz and stuff like that. Uh, you, you, you are aware of that. And so you're very much more conservative yeah. in the way you configure that airplane. You know, Air, Houston is, Houston's an easy airport. I mean, you're, you're basically sea level, nothing to hit around for miles. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an easy. It's all about yeah. just managing your energy. And as exactly. you mentioned, sure. Rick, you know, the, the more experience you have with a particular airplane, the more comfortable you are and how the airplane flies and manages yeah. energy. I mean, I, I was the same way when I started out, you know, I plan, you know, t- 10, 15 miles out, get configured. And now I've, I'm doing it as I'm turning, you know, five mile final, 10 feet above. Yeah. T- 10 feet above. Yeah. Fully configured. Okay, let's go ahead and put the gear down. <laughs> but you know, yeah, I, the thing, the thing here, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was just gonna say, you know, I've got guys that move from the 175 to the CRJ that haven't flown the CRJ and know, you know, how you can configure at five miles. So they, they always kind of like, hey, you gonna configure? I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll configure when I'm five miles out. They're like, that's a little lazy. Like, no, it, it's fine. It'll you work. Know. It'll work. Trust me. Yeah, trust me. Yeah, never. <laughs> even if a pilot tells you that, trust me. Don't, don't trust. <laughs> yeah. The thing here is make sure that uh, that you are completely stabilized and everything done, checklist complete, everything ready by a yes. thousand feet, whether it's IMC or VMC. That's why I tell my FOs, look, you do whatever it is you want to do, just have me stabilize at a thousand. Because if you don't, we're going to have to go around. Yeah. Now, some of the headlines uh, out there are saying, well, the the first officer pushed, the co-pilot pushed the wrong button and that caused the airplane to crash. Well, mm, no. no, that may have been a mm. catalyst in this. It was like initiated the the series of events yeah. that occurred here, but it was the reaction to accidentally hitting that button. And then 99.9999% of the time, um, if something like that happens, and it's not necessarily that unusual that something like that could happen inadvertently, you immediately recognize, oop, i accidentally bump the go around switch the yep. throttles are coming up you know turn the throttles off bring the throttles back you know control the situation yeah and and, and kind of going into the other part um you know this fo's training history um one of the other places that he had worked with that he didn't um disclose 
Um, I believe one of the sim instructors said he had a very bad tendency of when things started um, going wrong, he would just push buttons and stuff. That's not something you want to do in no. a transport category airplane, just start pushing buttons because you're panicking, let alone panicking in general. Yeah, and I think yeah. we've mentioned this uh, be on previous episodes that he completely lied about or concealed the fact that he had not one, but two. I think it was actually three now that they'd gotten done digging around. It was somebody, somebody else, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, several yeah, other airlines that uh, he had trouble in their training program and basically failed out and or he dropped out because he knew that he probably couldn't he couldn't finish couldn't finish yeah. the program and uh, he neglected to tell atlas or the uh, directed agent or whatever they call it, whatever the term is um that uh, of this information yeah uh, because he knew that if he had told them that this that he was never going to be hired by anybody yeah and, and you know I, I think for those that aren't pilots or understand how things are done here. The rest, you know, we have this thing called PRIA, which is the pilot record system that we currently have. And it's all done by forms and mail. So when you're applying at an airline, you got to get the records. You basically fill out this form and then the company you're working for will mail it to the other company to get the records. And it takes a while to get this. I believe in the video we're watching, it took seven weeks for them just to get uh, records from the companies that he said he worked for. And by that time, he was already starting his sim session. So, I mean, it it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a flawed system. It's got issues. and I think they're trying to fix it. But, um, you know, not having that information handy can make, you know, your decision to hire or not hire somebody different, I would think, than, um, you know, what they're currently doing. Right. And also in this situation, um, when the captain realized that, uh, the first officer was doing an, an inappropriate response right. to the situation. Um, as they said, he he never said, I have the airplane. And, you know, he never, uh, even though he was activating the controls, he never said, hey, dude, let go. I have the airplane, you know, let, relinquish the controls. I have the airplane. I, and then, you know, we we wouldn't be talking about this yes. right now. And mm -hmm. But it's not the first event in today's episode that nope. this has happened. I think it's number three, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. three yeah. with some kind of control issue and not yeah. following SOP. So uh, very, very sad situation. There's so much more that we could talk about in it. Oh, uh, can we? Because uh, people have been asking in the chat room if uh, you guys would like to comment on the recommendation that uh, installation of cockpit imaging recorders under... Part 121 or 135 aircraft should be implemented. I think they should yeah, after uh, December of 2023. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my recommendation is. I mean, is that because you still like flying buck naked? <laughs> <laughs> no, Nick, I told you that we're not going to discuss that on the show. That's not a public thing. Okay, sorry. My, my bad. No, my, my question with that is that, I mean, what, 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 what could you... I mean, the flight, the digital flight data recorders and quick access recorders have access to so much, and that you know what, what, what would be the what would be the benefit besides seeing the two pilots? I mean, I don't, I don't understand. Uh, I think maybe one benefit I see is just seeing where hand placement is, and if they actually activate or deactivate anything on the control panel or the throttle quadrant, anything like that. You can because they said they can't determine really; they're just kind of yeah, they're think, guessing they're guessing that Based the on first officer is the one that hit data the, so yeah. I, I can see that and to be honest i mean 
I don't know. I mean, I, I fly a CRJ. I don't, I don't even know where they would put the camera to start with. Not only that, you can't really see everything, especially if it's dark. You can't. Yeah, I mean, exactly. you want you to make an infrared camera. And then not only that, you've got to um, modify the certificate for the aircraft because it's new equipment. And then you got to put exactly. the email list. And then what happens when you have to defer it? Is there a special procedure in place? They, they, they're going to let you just get a new one? Or are you going to be able to defer it and go fly? Well, I to mean, be fair, Stephen, all that will be sorted out by the FAA. There'll be an MEL thing, and it'll be like some other uh, well, uh, components, like the accident data recorder. Are you allowed to fly with that working or not, et cetera? Yeah. And it'll all fit in. They'll it find will. somewhere to stick it. They'll, they'll work it out. The basic concept is... Uh, there is two real, really diverse points of view here. There's an entire um, number of pilots who think it's got to be good because the amount of information you can add to the analysis uh, of an accident uh, naturally needs to include what you see as well as what you hear. We've got voice recorders. Why can't we have video recorders? But there seems to be another element that are incredibly resistant I don't understand why. And, and, and yeah, get, get, I get all that. But let's, let's also look at this, though. It's taken them over 10 years to do a pilot record database system that's not even operational right now. And we're going to get the FAA to implement video recording for all 21 135 carriers in the United States. That's going to at least take probably 50 years. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. I, I mean, just. Oh, yeah. But it could be argued well, that even if it does, and, at and least then, it's. It's done. And at then, some point. And you, then you get the pilot unions to deal with too. That's a whole nother. Oh, yeah. That's a whole no, separate that, thing. That, that's the other thing. That's yeah. voice that, recorders. That, voice recorders were introduced and they were implemented within uh, two years, five years of it becoming law in certain countries. I'm sure uh, America can work this out, just like every other country will have to, because you know, ICAO will. No, not IKEA, but the, the various <laughs> controlling authorities will generally work hand in glove with each other. And if one country does it, everyone will do it. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, my, uh, my viewpoint about that has slowly been changing over time to uh, a position where, yeah, maybe it's something to think about, but I don't know. Um, I'll just have to re uh, get used to flying with clothes on. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, right. Do you still put a plastic bag on the seat for the next pilot? Well, if I if I have the time and and I feel, <laughs> you know, civil at at the time, yeah, I do. That's very good of you. Yes, very oh, good. Of thank you, you very much. Well, speaking of civil, uh, I think it's now time to introduce somebody that I've noticed in our who has joined us in. In the video and of course we all know her as dr steph and let me do her little spiel here she is from uh coming from us at her lakeside home in the carolinas and she is a doctor that's why i call her dr steph uh skydiver marathon runner strength training junkie ipa connoisseur and not necessarily the most important but she is a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot hello dr steph Hi, Captain Jeff. It's good to see all you guys. Steven, Captain Nick. Hi. Hi. Hey, yeah, I figured I should probably start. I should probably, I've been listening to the last piece of uh, news there for a little while while I was uh, grabbing a quick bite of lunch after work here. Um, 
But I figured I should jump in when you started talking about flying naked. I felt like HR needed to Uh-oh. have a presence here. Uh, <laughs> Dang it. We yeah. almost got it. Right, you, you approve or not? Start taking, start taking notes. Uh, well, we'll discuss that later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you drive topless. <laughs> <laughs> that's the car nick that's the car uh, okay okay yeah All sometimes right. you're you get a little confused about that nick yeah oh, nick, nick okay. is a little uncertain as to yeah, lost in translation over here yes, i don't exactly. see a difference driving flying it's all the same also i wanted to address i, I clearly wore the right t-shirt for today you were talking about i said my t-shirt says uh, trust me i'm a pilot so. <laughs> yes <laughs> excellent very <laughs> nice yeah. i mean anyway. you all you all agree right uh that uh, you never i mean Obviously, there there are degrees of trust, uh, but you cannot you cannot ever completely trust the person with whom you're flying because that person may be having a bad day uh, or might be distracted by something. So you always have to, you know. I, I see. I remember as an instructor, and many of you listening who are flight instructors probably can identify with this. It seems that the the one student that's going to get you in trouble is the one that you think man they they know everything there is to know they're such a solid pilot i can kind of not worry about them anymore and as soon as you stop <laughs> paying attention that's when that Boom. pilot tries to kill you and uh, that's why you know i used to have brown hair i have a <laughs> lot of gray slash white hair now and it's uh, mainly because of the students that tried to kill me in uh, jet pilot training in the u.s air forces when i was an instructor especially when they're on my wing solo. Wow. That just still yeah. makes me. Those, those turning rejoins. Oh, they gosh. Were... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were, they I know. Death City. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, yeah. We just, uh, did you want to add anything else, uh, Steph, to our discussion of any of the news items before we get on to one of the No, you guys did a uh, great of job of all that. So. Well, thanks. Well done. Except for yeah, the naked you. stuff. You know, we'll, we'll, well take that's, that. you know, I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I was paying attention. Okay. Well, very good. Well, now it's time. Oh, and such a lovely picture with the nonverbal <laughs> gestures and uh, all kinds of. That's the kind of captive we all want to fly. <laughs> <laughs> Which, interestingly, um, I don't know if we have that in the, uh, uh, the feedback today or not, but I did receive some feedback from somebody requesting some advice regarding flying with captains like that one pictured uh, in the video. <laughs> I think it is in there. I think I yeah, saw it in the... Good. Yeah, I think it's down the end. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, let's see. Who wants to go first and tell us what's happening with them since the last episode? I Well, it's not going to be Nick because he just took <laughs> he himself out. <laughs> Nick's like, I'm out. <laughs> Rick. Hey, you know, you missed the last episode. We missed you, and we're so happy that you were able to join us today because, man, this guy went out of the way to uh, make sure that he was with us on today's episode. What time is it there in Seoul, Korea? It is just uh, 5.06 in the morning here. Yikes. On, uh, on Thursday, yeah. So it's uh, I'm on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the world, other side of the clock, a day ahead of everybody. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've been, uh, been out here for the last couple of days. I, uh, commercialed from, uh, from Phoenix up to, uh, up to Anchorage by, uh, uh, Dallas an American. That was nice. And then I, uh, I, uh, rode a, uh, seven, four company, seven, four down here to, uh, to Seoul the other day, which was nice. Nice to be on the seven, four for, uh, you know, after, after a couple of months, 
Um, and then I've been sitting here uh, doing uh, what we call rice runs. So uh, this particular, the three sectors from uh, Incheon, South Korea to uh, Taipei to Nagoya and back here called rice runs because we carry rice. It's got nothing to do with anything else. It's uh, a lot of the stuff that carries rice. So I'm going to be doing that. Uh, I did that uh, first uh, set of flights yesterday, and then I'm going to do them again today in about another 12 and a half hours doing that and then uh hopefully be done here in a few days and head back uh stateside to sleep for a week straight because uh, <laughs> i'm not this <laughs> uh this jet lag stuff i tell you that's why i went to the seven six and uh it, it really is a it really is a little bit of a it, it kicks you in the butt quite hard um and my, I don't know. I'm also must be getting a little older. I can't deal with it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I do well, so well, 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 Welcome to the club. Hey, let me tell you, it gets better. No, that's not right. It does, does it really? No, actually, it, it actually doesn't. Yeah, that's what I hear all day from my patients, too. <laughs> yeah. Getting I find myself definitely. doing this all the time. You know, like, <laughs> away. I'm like, what the? It, you know, it's so. fine once the dementia sets in. You'll be all right. <laughs> then, you, yeah, then you don't worry like, about it anymore. Exactly. <laughs> You're just happy all the time. All your cares go away. <laughs> it's like this guy sitting next to me. I don't know who he is. Every day, it's like I meet a new friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for great car rides. Yeah. You've been doing the driving, Very, right? You've been... Very nice. uh, yeah. No, actually, Jeff drove uh -oh. Uh -oh. a little bit yesterday and the day before. Uh -oh. Oh, I'm glad you guys arrived safely. He says, okay, Thanks. Grandpa, you know, the speed limit's <laughs> above 30. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. With, with a blinker on the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not that bad. Close, but not that bad. Nah, we, um, we love you, Jeff. We love oh, you. Oh, thanks. I love you guys, too. <laughs> um well great um so anything else rick or shall we move on no nothing just uh just flying out here happy to be uh happy to be back on uh with you guys i uh missed uh last week had a little uh not not quite a medical emergency but uh, we had a uh uh an appointment to the endocrinologist for for kaya and uh it ran a little long because mm -hmm. the that's uh, just different protocols and stuff and i just saw the time was it's like we got to be heading back soon. We got to be and it just just ran long and you know just Better doctors off. never run yeah. behind schedule. I can never. confirm that one hundred percent. I I, understand. I mean that's crazy because then why why do they give you an appointment time? It's like come on. It's a, yeah. I mean that's the time we want you to be there. <laughs> <laughs> that's nothing to do with the doctor. It has nothing to do with us. I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, how are the cacti? The cacti are good. They're uh, happy, plump. Uh, one of them got me the other day. My hand <laughs> still hurts. Yikes. Little <laughs> but, uh, they're good. Okay. Good to hear. Dang. We've been seeing a lot of cacti yeah. on, on this trip. A lot of time out here in the West. So yesterday. Really cool. Do, do they really look like the ones in the cartoons where they got like three? Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, oh, yeah. The, 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 the saguaros. Those are called uh, saguaros. Yeah, especially wow. where yeah we're in, in the part of the country that Rick is. Uh, you see a lot of them down there. We didn't see a lot are of. Are they them the ones you time. make tequila out of? No, that's agave. Yeah, agave. That's agave. It's different. What's that uh, one look like? It's like uh, more leaf, uh, broad leafy. Um, yeah, and it's like, it's, it's not it's yeah. not like a cactus proper. It's it's uh it's a lot. Uh, it, it doesn't. Shorter. It's a lot shorter. It's got. Shorter, it does lot, have like little sticky things on the broad leaves. Yeah. Yeah. But it's but it's not your it's not your typical saguaro no not the not the cartoony ones. Oh, okay. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're at, you'll have to come out here sometime, Nick. Uh, we'll do a road trip and we'll show you all the yeah, cactus. Yeah, love it. 
cacti. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd rather drink some tequila. That'd be great. Oh, yeah, you'd have to. <laughs> Forget the cacti. Tequila. Tequila. My favorite karaoke song. <laughs> yeah. uh, Nick, since we're uh, talking tequila uh, and... Uh, tequila! Well, there we go. What's What's been happening with you besides drinking mass quantities of alcohol? <laughs> Well, that is actually. Uh, I'm I'm trying to find a couple of days in the week where I uh, don't have to drink, but oh, uh, don't have you know, to. I get. <laughs> yeah, I'm, how's, I'm how's finding my my life gets a bit boring by five o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, you know, uh, a drink or two helps. Yeah, um, and not a lot. And now a major event in my life is washing the car. So uh, what can I say? Um, I'm actually thinking. Uh, hoping that to be able to get together with uh, Pilot Pip and Al, I think both are in the chat room yeah. next week. So if that comes off, chaps, really looking forward to that. Um, but uh, otherwise, you know, just doing normal sort of me stuff, uh, a bit of photography, um, being in touch with Ant, uh, chatting away on, uh, you know, his um, photography channel and Twitter, uh, Ant Pruitt. Uh, Love that guy. He's great. Giving me some advice about uh, the new Canon camera I'm thinking of getting. Oh. And um, I've been playing my bowls and uh, still in all the competitions. I haven't been knocked out yet. So that's, that's kind of good. Uh, life for me is um, very relaxing. Thank you. You'll enjoy it, Jeff, when you get there. <laughs> well, I do now. <laughs> yeah, oh, I true. thought you were talking about playing with my balls. Uh, <laughs> 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 Uh, I've been doing that since I was about 11. It's our record. Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. (laughs) I'm sorry. Are you going to meet with Nev as well, Nick? I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs. Uh, I'm waiting to see what happens. Excellent. Well, you'll have to uh, give us a full report on that. Well, as much as you can for our well, uh, G-rated it, show. PG. PG, maybe. PG-13? Our light. You know what? Nev and his oh. banana, they get everywhere. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> oh my. This is escalating quickly. <laughs> well. <laughs> hey. Um, Same as Steph. Yeah. Yeah, hi. HR. How are y'all doing? How's it going? <laughs> it, it's good. Um, I can bring this right back to a very boring level of discussion. Um, okay, good. Since the last time we chatted, I have done, a, well, a lot of work and then a lot of nothing. I had a nice weekend of doing nothing for the first time in a while. So caught up on some sleep. Um, it was Justice's birthday, so we had a very nice dinner out in Charlotte. Nice. Um, spent a lot of time on the lake. It was a nice, sunny, hot weekend, as happens in July in the Carolinas. The water temperature has reached bath, bathtub status. Um, nice. Yeah, nice, lukewarm, 88-degree water temperature, 85-degree oh. water temperature. Yeah. Um, and just worked on my yeah, my suntan a little bit. So it's been nice and relaxing. And, Looks good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, thanks. Um, my vitamin D levels, I should say. Got to prevent yes. those... Uh, Rickets. Nothing to do with aesthetics. <laughs> it's all about medicine and health. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, work's still been busy. Um, today was not too terribly busy, so I'm glad I was able to get here reasonably on time and join you guys. Great. We're we're glad that you did. Um, and so now it's our turn. Stephen, what have you been doing re- recently? Uh, nothing. Just, nothing? Just, just sitting. Just sitting? Uh, yeah, just sitting. We have been doing a lot of sitting. Lots of sitting. 
but we've been moving in a car in a car. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following us on uh, our little road trip um, uh, episodic audio adventures. Absolutely. Very entertaining. Thank you for that. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, didn't put out uh, day eight and nine because we it's, uh, didn't put out. What is no, that? It, it seems to be this reoccurring <laughs> theme. We we start watching this show on Amazon and we just we we lose track. Yeah, we'll do time. it later. Yeah, yeah. Do it, just do it later. By the way, the, the, it's a really entertaining show on Amazon Prime called Catastrophe. I don't know if any of you out there have 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 seen it. It's not something you want it to watch. Sounds with your, a bit like it's, this it's, show. it's not a family show. Yeah, it's not, not a family show. Yeah, it's NSW. Uh, not no, was it uh, NSFW? NSF. That's it. Not not suitable for work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or family, <laughs> young ones. Yeah. But it's uh, really uh, the writing and dialogue is just uh, uh, amazingly good. It really is funny. Um, anyway. So, um, yeah, uh, we, yeah. we were, the last show we did was early on in our trip. We, yeah, were, was in, we were in Durango, Colorado. We rode the train and everything. Yeah. Um, and then the next day drove, uh, through Utah, went, uh, through Zion and then ended up in, uh, Hurricane, um, Utah, spent the night there. Well, you forgot about no, Moab. No, the next day was Moab. Yeah. We went Durango oh, yeah. to Moab. Oh yeah, that's Arches right. I, and Canyonlands National Park. Yeah, so Durango. Then we went over to did Moab. Uh, uh, so Arches drove through there. Canyonlands. Then went over the Canyonlands. Saw everything there. Then Jeff, we stayed in Moab. Jeff, is he your travel agent? I'd I'd get a new one, mate. <laughs> well, I mean, on paper, he's great. <laughs> no, no, he's 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 fantastic. Actually, he he. He actually coordinated almost everything on this trip, yeah. which is it, really nice. Yeah, surprisingly, cool. everything went decently well. But yeah, uh, so did that. And then we got the next day, drove through Utah, uh, ended up in Hurricane after we went through Zion, which um, that wasn't planned. That just, uh, what was it, Stephen? Stephen uh, Andrus. Yeah, um, he uh, recommended we t- take this alternate route to go through there. So uh, went through there. Which was really good advice. Yeah, it was. That was actually really nice going through there. Um, stayed in Hurricane and then drove down to the Grand Canyon. And we skipped the North Rim just based on time. And I'm kind of glad we did because it it took a long time to go around the backside because the East uh, Rim entrance was closed because of COVID. The Navajo Reservation didn't want people coming in and out. So we had to go all the way down the Flagstaff to go back up to the South Rim. Um, we went through there, did a couple of different viewpoints, looked at the Grand Canyon, um, stayed inside of the uh, Grand Canyon Village that night. And then the next day, we just drove over to, uh, what was the name of the town we stayed at? Pahrump, uh, Nevada. Pahrump, yeah. Yep. Uh, we stopped in Vegas, got lunch. But the main part of that was to try and see Hoover Dam, which is closed, um, even though the little thing says you can go to the viewpoint. But you have to go across the dam to get to the viewpoint, and the dam's closed. So it didn't work out. It didn't work out. So that was kind of just a day of driving. Um, and then... Yesterday, uh, we got up and drove into Death Valley, which um, is a whole lot of nothing, really. Um, but we went down to the uh, we went to the highest point of Death Valley and got attacked by bees. Um, I, I'm glad I was paying attention because there was a sign on the drive up that said "Bee Hazard," and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, not that big of a deal. And I, I've never seen bees this aggressive. Like we got out of the car to try and take pictures, they just came out of nowhere and just started flying around. They they like clumped up on the car. It was pretty yeah. 
pretty crazy. Like it's like that movie Birds, really? except for it was bees. Yeah, except for, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we, we didn't stay long at that point, um, and bees? then went down the uh, mountains where we were at, and then went along this um, dirt road through the canyon, which is actually where they filmed um, Return of the Jedi, where they're going to Jabba's palace. It's that same stretch of dirt that they, uh, the droids are going across. It was a dirt road? Yeah, it was dirt road. Um, I'm really surprised my car made it through some of it. To be yeah, honest. I was like, oh, <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah. We don't, we're not in a four-wheel drive Jeep. We're, we're in a, in a two-wheel drive Prius. Yeah. <laughs> that, that Prius served us well yeah um then we uh, drove down to the salt flats and the salt flats is actually where moss isley is supposed to be so it's not really there it's just salt um went down to the lowest point in um north america north america 280 282 or yeah. something like that or 280 something yep. feet below sea level yep and then uh wow. continued on back up through death valley Stop to uh, see the dunes for a new hope that uh, the droids kind of land and um, are wandering around and all that. Um, and then we continued on and uh, th- it got kind of interesting. Um, we kind of went up this incline to go over into the next valley where the Star Wars Canyon is at. And uh, just a lot of going up and then going down. The Prius kind of didn't like that. The brakes kind of got hot and everything. Um, not only that, it was I think it was already 110 degrees by 10 o'clock in the morning so mm-hmm. got warm really quick but uh we stopped the star wars canyon took a break and uh was hoping to see some jets we saw two but they were kind of high they didn't really cut through the canyon but that canyon is not it no it's nowhere near as big as it looks like in pictures i mean it is really tight i'm really surprised they uh they drop cut- down below eye level if you're in that little uh yeah. viewpoint or vista area whatever you call it yeah it is it, it, it a sight to see i really wish we could have seen someone cut through there but yeah. uh we hung out for a little while. Yeah, but, uh, we, yeah. Had had some food or some snacks that we had, and then uh, continued on and drove down towards uh, San Pedro, where we're staying now. And then we stopped in Lancaster. I had some stuff to take care of for my apartment, and uh, actually just kind of wanted to pick out where my office was going to be at um, for my new job. And uh, nice apartment uh, complex, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that, it was. Uh, um, yeah, and then I actually. I, <laughs> I never actually had looked at the apartment complex in real life. It was all Google based. So I'm kind of glad it did look nice after seeing it in person. Um, but yeah, I then get the drive through LA traffic and uh, ended up here and had a really nice dinner last night. So, and yep. then the house is really interesting, like uh, nice statues and other artwork yeah. in this place. Yeah. It's eclectic. Um, yeah, for sure. But it's a really nice place. And it's just, Really nice, close to the uh, water, uh, the uh, Los Angeles Harbor. This house was actually constructed in 1887, I 87, think. 1887, yeah. You said, yeah. And um, anyway, the... 1987 or 1887? 1887, believe it or not. Wow. Golly, I didn't know America to be invented then. Well, I think... Uh, I mean, that's really old for us, Nick. Like, <laughs> yeah. It really is. Especially on the West Coast, really old. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, a really nice, dry breeze outside and relatively cool especially compared to the last several days yeah. of the trip has uh, been quite high temperatures um yeah it's been a great it's been really a lot of fun and uh, now steph how many national parks have you uh, logged on your national park uh, it's a good question. Hold on. Wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, Look at my map. Oh, yeah, we're not, we're, 10, we only 11. Went through, I got 11. Oh, okay. We only went through five. Yeah, five. Yeah, wow. we got some work to do, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway. Well, that's out of like almost 60. So I'm not doing so hot either. Yeah. Got a few more to go. <laughs> but we knocked out five in just a few days. Time. Yeah. 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 I mean, Utah is the place to do that. So yeah. Lots of national Most of my national parks are in Utah. The ones right. I've been to. Because they're all right there. Yeah. So uh been eating, for the most part, good food. And, um, you know, a couple couple uh hits and misses yeah. or, mo- or some yeah, misses like the but French mostly fries hits. at in and out yesterday those were disappointing i, we, I don't know what happened what? but yeah uh, uh, yeah i don't know they, they weren't really hot yeah. and they didn't have any pre-salt on them it was really disappointing hmm. yeah yeah usually they're pretty good but the double double yeah burger uh, was yeah awesome good. there you go there you go <laughs> and oh, good I'm for you hungry. yeah no, i need some in and out burger breakfast <laughs> opens here in two hours so perfect oh good oh good yeah I mean, right in time an hour, for an hour. Breakfast buffet. <laughs> 6.30. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then after today's recording, uh, I'm going to pack everything up as quickly as I can. We're going to put the bags in Stephen's Prius, and then we're going to drive from here across the harbor, or mm-hmm. sort of, uh, to Bel- no, Ballast Point. Point Brewing Company, their Long Beach location. And uh, we're going to have a little mini APG meetup there and open air. Don't worry. Um, I know that California has been very restrictive regarding that kind of thing, but it's all open air and they're they're using all kinds of protocols to ensure social distancing and all that jazz. So uh, we're going to meet our masks and things. Got our mask. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So we're going to head over there for uh, a meetup for a few hours and then um, I'm going to uh, either Steven or somebody, I hope, will uh, drive me up to. Yeah, you're you're, you're walking from here, buddy. You, okay. I, I got you this far. <laughs> okay, it's been a week. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm own. not sure. You know, did I say something wrong? Um, but uh, go up to the Union Station in Los Angeles and uh, board the Sunset Limited uh, that leaves tonight and uh, ends up after two and a half days in New Orleans. And then uh, I'll spend the night at a hotel nearby the station there in New Orleans. And then on Saturday, uh, the Crescent from New Orleans to Atlanta. So I'm looking forward to this is the first time I've ever taken a long train journey here in the in the U.S. or overnight, that kind of thing. So nice. it'll be a lot of fun, I hope. Yeah, yeah I hope so, too. Yeah. So, oh, um, oh, let me refer to something that was sent in by... Someone who uh, apologized for not being able to make it to our um, our meetup today, and it's uh, we know him as Pasadena Brian uh, Brian Coleman. Uh, he sent me this. He said, "Longtime listeners of the show might remember the name Pasadena Brian. If you're new to the show, there is now a reason to know him." In addition to being a longtime listener of the APG show, he was also the associate producer and co-host of the other great aviation podcast, Airplane Geeks. Anywho, uh, passenger or Pasadena Brian couldn't make it here to the meetup today, but I wanted to pass along a special promotion he created for the APG community. He has an Etsy shop and has been making aviation-themed masks as well as other styles of masks to help protect each of us in style. Best of all, all the proceeds from these mask sales are going to support a local Pasadena women's shelter. Therefore, if you need a mask and have the funds, it would be great if you could support his shop and help raise much needed money for the Pasadena women's shelter to make this offer even better. But wait, how much would you pay now? Huh? One dollar, Bob. Well, no, it's more than that, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, he has created a special discount coupon for all of you APGers. Please go to his Etsy shop, T-A-B Fabric, and we'll have the link in the show notes. But again, that's Etsy.com slash shop 
slash uh, capital T, capital A, capital B, and then all lowercase fabric, and check out the masks. Probably a pretty good chance that you don't have to, I don't know if it's um, uh, case specific or not in an, a URL like that. Sometimes they are. That's weird. Um, anyway, check out the masks. But as many as you want, or buy as uh, many as you want, and add the code LOVEAPG. And in this case, it's all uppercase. L-O-V-A-P-G, Love A-P-G, to receive an additional 10% discount. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for your support. And remember to use the code LOVEAPG, all caps, for your discount. So uh, we're happy to support that, Brian. Thank you uh, for, for doing that and supporting the uh, local uh, women's shelter in Pasadena. And I'm sorry that you weren't uh, able to come down and meet up with us today. But, you know, hopefully sometime in the future... If we're still alive and the Rona is gone, uh, we'll we'll have another meetup out this way, I'm sure. Post-Rona. Yes, post-Rona. Okay. Um, and anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? I think we covered everything. All right. Let's do that then. And I'll push this button here. It says coffee fund. And now it's time to sing, Stephen. Johnny, how much more coffee? La, 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 la. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> I love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, Coffee Fund, your way, dear listener, to support the show financially. You'll notice we don't have advertising on the show, except for the Etsy thing that we did for Brian, because he's a good friend and uh, community member at the APG. Um, so we have to, uh, well, we don't have to, but we like getting donations, contributions from you all to help uh, offset some of the costs of doing the show, equipment and such, and also uh, meetups, funding, that kind of thing. So two different ways to do it. One is called the uh, Classic Fund. And since the last episode, we have Catherine Jones, Richard Adams, and George Leslie contribute to the uh, APG Classic Coffee Fund. Another way to do it is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. No new patrons this week, uh, but that's okay. We've got a bunch of great folks that are patrons of the show. And if you want to check that out as well, please head to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And there you'll find a couple of different ways to support the show. And we really do appreciate it. All right, let's start off with item numero uno in the feedback notebook. Hello, Captain Jeff and crew. I just scoured the, oh, by the way, this is from Ahmad Dan Hamadou. Hello, Captain Jeff and crew. I just scoured the web for anything on that description of the Boeing 747 as, quote, the, that place that went to, or the place that went to Hawaii twice a day. The statement may, in fact, have been made by a journalist media outlet covering the emergence of the 747 or by Boeing. I'm still trying to recollect. Apparently, I forgot to mention that the statement was made back then just to illustrate the grandeur of the aircraft as received by the people of that time. I racked my memory some more and now uh, recall that the article containing the statement was contained in a press release 
uh, a newsletter that accompanied the huge, oh, let's see, the press release, IT newsletter maybe, that accompanied the huge poster. There was also printed material in the, quote, working together collaboration between viewing and its main customers that helped shape the develop oh, between Boeing probably and its main customers that helped shape the development of the Boeing Triple Seven. Unfortunately, during our recollect uh, relocation, which I was absent from, from one of our former uh, from one of our former homes, those printed materials got lost. I sent some inquiries to Boeing Commercial to see if they could come up with anything on the article. So, uh, yeah, Akmad had sent in. Um, something regarding the um, marketing slogan or whatever the place that went to Hawaii twice a day and so we discussed it a little bit and we were and he was trying to kind of give us a little bit more information about that I did a search you know just a cursory search on uh, Google uh, and uh, couldn't come up with anything that referenced that particular slogan so he's trying to help us out so thank you Ahmad if you do end up um, finding more information about that, uh, well, I don't even have to tell him this. He, he'll, he'll let us know. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, just a technical break here. Liz, did you want me to change the order of any of these, or do you want me to continue with? I think just continue for now, and then I'll give you a little list after the plain tale, I think. Okay, very good. All right, let's move on to item two, uh, sent in from uh, Lucas. Uh, just another data point on aircraft that has that have gaseous oxygen systems for passengers. The mighty 747-400. I only remember that due to Qantas Flight 30, which you can read about. Uh, and then he gives us a link to Qantas Flight 30. And uh, in it, uh, just a recap here, uh, this is the Australian Transport Safety Bureau. Um, depressurization event, 475 kilometers northwest of Manila, Philippines, back in July of 2008. It was a Boeing Company 747-438, Victor Hotel, Oscar Juliet Kilo. Basically, uh, again, we were talking about uh, gaseous uh, as opposed to the oxygen, chemical oxygen gener generators uh, that are on most modern airplanes now. Uh, again, on the 25th of July, 2008, uh, the Boeing 747-400 with 365 pass persons on board departed Hong Kong International Airport on a scheduled transport flight to Melbourne, Australia. Approximately 55 minutes into the flight, while the aircraft was cruising at 29,000 feet, a loud bang was heard by passengers and crew, followed by the rapid depressurization of the cabin. Oxygen masks dropped from the overhead compartment shortly afterward, and it was reported that most passengers and crew commenced using the masks. After donning their own oxygen masks, the flight crew carried out the cabin altitude non-normal checklist items and commenced a descent to a lower altitude where supplemental breathing oxygen would no longer be required. A mayday distress radio call was made on the regional air traffic control frequency. After leveling the aircraft at 10,000 feet, the flight crew diverted to Nanoy Aquino International Airport, Manila, where an uneventful visual approach and landing was made. The aircraft was stopped on the runway for an external inspection before move, being towed to the terminal for passenger disembarkation. Subsequent inspection of the aircraft by the operators 
personnel and ATSB investigators revealed an inverted T-shaped rupture in the lower right side of the fuselage immediately beneath the wing leading edge to fuselage transition fairing, which had been lost during the event. Items of wrapped cargo were observed partially protruding from the rupture, which extended for approximately two meters along the length of the aircraft and one and a half meters vertically. A big hole. Uh, after... After clearing the baggage and cargo from the forward aircraft hold, it was evident that one passenger oxygen cylinder, number four from a bank of seven along the right side of the cargo hold, had sustained a sudden failure and forceful discharge of its pressurized contents into the aircraft hold, rupturing the fuselage in the vicinity of the wing fuselage leading edge fairing. The cylinder had been propelled upward by the force of the discharge, puncturing the cabin floor and entering the cabin adjacent to the second main cabin door. The cylinder had subsequently impacted the door frame, door handle, and overhead paneling before falling to the cabin floor and exiting the aircraft through the ruptured fuselage. Woo, what a trip. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> exciting. <laughs> what is that? Well, I just came hey. to say hi. Now, see ya. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's one of the uh, dangers, I guess, uh, involved in, you know, carrying Cats. oxygen cylinders. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think aren't most um, flight deck slash cockpit uh, oxygen systems the gaseous type? I know that every airplane I've flown, they have been. Uh, for the passengers, usually, as I mentioned earlier these days, mostly the uh, chemical generators. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Rick? Uh, I think that he was. Oh, yeah. I'm no, the, the it's just like you said, the uh, the their uh, the oxygen system for 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 cockpits is in, in fact the the tanks. Then you go down to the lower forty one there, the down the E and E, and you can you, you can see the the bottles. Uh, as I said, I think a couple episodes ago, the triple seven freighter had uh, a set of tanks for the cockpit and also a set of tanks for the supernumeraries in the back. Uh, but just as you said. Uh, I mean, at least the passenger jets that I've flown, uh, the, the passenger oxygen system is, in fact, the chemical one. So uh, I've never flown yeah. it. Maybe, although maybe that, that may not be true because on the because I've flown passenger dash 400s. And uh, I actually I don't I don't know if 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 our 400s have gaseous systems uh or is it chemical i don't know i'd, I'd have to i'd have to look so but, this particular uh, one like all three systems it said were gaseous um oxygen system um there were 13 high pressure uh cylinders for the for the passengers mm. so yeah and then they all went through like a flow control unit i guess that would disperse it yeah like yeah. a common bus or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not Airbus, though. Well, all, all, all I'm saying is because I on the um, as part of the pre-flight, once you when you go down to your to your ICAS screens, your engine indicating crew alerting system, you go to one of the pages uh, status, and on that status page, you get the uh, uh, the pressure of the oxygen system, and you can certainly see the, the, it says crew oxygen, but I don't remember seeing a a, a passenger oxygen. Um, uh, pressure value for it, which leads me to believe that it, it this it, it's clear that this might this this has to be some kind of option, some some uh, some airline specific option. I'm mm-hmm. sure some airlines have it, some airlines don't, um, but I don't remember seeing that on the 400s I've flown. Well, we um, at Acme in Salt Lake City back in the mid early to mid 90s had a 727 sitting at the gate. I think it was gate four, and the um, I think most, let's see, most of the crew, 
had were not on the airplane. I think most of the passengers. I'm not sure of the, all the details now. It's, it's been a while, but um, the uh, that airplane had all gaseous oxygen uh, for both passengers and uh, and cockpit crew. And one of the uh, cylinders located in the uh, lower uh, forward cargo section of the airplane, I believe that's where it was located, um, ended up um, leaking and then catching fire. And the airplane caught on fire. And uh, luckily, the uh, flight engineer, I believe it was a flight engineer, was on board at the time and was able to get um, the passengers that were on the airplane uh, safely off the airplane. It was kind of a hero, actually. Mm. Um, So, yeah, they can... Not only be rockets, <laughs> Columbus, Mississippi, uh, Carl uh, uh, said that uh, he's seen the valves get knocked off and the things shoot like a rocket for hundreds of yards. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah they're pretty, uh, uh, he said 2,000 PSI. Um, just going back to this one on the 7.4, it was 1850 PSI for Gosh, 12,755 kilopascals. I don't know what that means. Oh, yeah, that's what I um, usually use. But it's, yeah. Uh, that's the standard. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, sounds like sounds like fairly high pressure there. Yeah, yeah. very high. Yeah, and I find it funny because as, as part of as part of the uh, of the um, uh, the exterior walk around that the that the FO does or whoever the uh, the, the relief pilot is, uh, you go on the front of the airplane and on the on the right hand side the front. Um, by the right underneath the RVSM area where the pedo uh, static tubes are and the uh, angle of attack vein is and all that, there's a there's a green disc, and that is the oxygen discharge disc. And I always found it funny that it's if it's green, it's fine, obviously, and if it's yellow, the the the, the bottle discharged. But uh, if the bottle blows up and it's going to leave a hole in the side of the airplane, I think that'd be your indicator. That's right a good there. indication. Instead of, good indication. <laughs> instead of, instead yeah, of the, but, uh, but is it a green hole or a yellow <laughs> hole? Exactly. Is it a yellow hole? Exactly. Well, if you actually look at the photos from this incident, um, it was multicolored. There were all kinds of uh, colors involved in the cargo trying to push out through the rupture of the uh, oh, yeah. aircraft. I guess it kind oh, of yeah. it sort of plugged up the hole, I guess, sort of. Yeah. Anyway, I'm guessing that must be a pretty standard system, Rick, because we had exactly the same indicator on the Airbus. Yep, it must, same yeah, I, McDonnell I Douglas's. So. Yeah. How about the RJ? Same thing, green. Yep, we got a green one right underneath the galley service door. Yep, there you go. Standard, standard. Okay, well, guess what time it is? It's uh, uh quarter to ten. That's uh one forty one in uh on the west coast, but that's not what I mean, and you know it. It is now time <laughs> for the best part of the show, the old pilot's plane tales. This one, interesting title. Uh it's gonna be uh, an interesting listen, I'm sure. Who killed Yogi Bear? The old pilot's plane tales. Who killed Yogi Bear? The ejector seat that was my chair of choice for nearly 20 years is still a subject of fascination for a lot of pilots, mainly those who have never been strapped to one, and also for the subjects of a small island in the Pacific whose ruler supposedly uses one from a crashed SR-71 as his throne. It's often the opinion of folk, not part of the small fast jet community, that an ejection is a simple matter, 
You just pull the handle and boom, you're safe. Certainly the community of American, Black and Himalayan bears aren't fooled. Several of them were conscripted. I certainly don't think they volunteered to take part in ejector seat tests for the United States Air Force B-58 Hustler back in the early 60s. Now, you may wonder why Yogi, smarter than the average bear, disappeared from our TV screens. It appears that he was one of several bears who were drugged and then fired out of an aircraft at a variety of altitudes and speeds to test the survivability of the Hustler ejection system. It was nice that they all lived through the trauma, including the one named Yogi, just suffering the odd broken bone, that is. Unfortunately, the subsequent medical examinations involved euthanasia before dissection to examine for internal injury. Poor Yogi. What happens when I pull a rope, Yogi? I sail over the wall, the parachute pops open, and old Yogi floats to the ground like a fallen leaf. Let's blast out, boo-boo. Don't forget to write. Ready, boo-boo boy? Go! Geronimo! I gotta admit, you don't quit, Yogi. How about that? He finally got off the ground. The first human to eject whilst supersonic was North American aviation test pilot George Smith, who abandoned an F-100 Super Sabre at Mach 1.05 as it hurtled towards the ground in a near-vertical dive. He'd been up at around 37,000 feet when the flight controls of his fighter began to feel heavy and the nose of the aircraft began to drop but then the stick refused to move as the flight control stopped responding to even the most vigorous of efforts, applying a considerable pull of over 200 pounds in an attempt to get out of the increasingly steep dive had no effect. The F-100's hydraulics had failed. As the brand new Super Sabre, just out of the factory, accelerated vertically downwards, Smith realised that it was going to be a very short flight. The little fighter passed the sound barrier, and he knew that his chances of survival were going to be slim. But then he heard a fellow pilot shout over the radio, Bail out, George! At around 675 knots, he jettisoned his canopy to be met with the howling roar of the air around him, and he instinctively hunkered down, not the thing to do when ejecting. Then, with a mere six and a half thousand feet left, he fired his seat out into the supersonic slipstream around the aircraft. Hitting the airflow was like hammering into a brick wall, the force of the air dragging him was around 8,000 pounds, 3,500 kilos, producing around 40 Gs of deceleration. Mercifully, George Smith was battered into unconsciousness. The blasting wind stripped him of his helmet, oxygen mask, boots, gloves, watch, 
and even his wedding ring. Blood from the severe bruising bloated his face into a swollen, grotesque and unrecognisable version of himself. His eyelids were forced open and his eyeballs tortuously mauled whilst his internal organs, unable to withstand the enormous g-forces, were severely damaged, particularly his liver. Horribly bruised and beaten, his body flailed end over end as it tumbled towards the ocean below. The ejector seat, however, operated as it was designed to do, and Smith's limp body was forced out of the metal frame, only to be hit by the shock of his parachute opening well above its maximum design speed. The force was so high that a third of the material in the canopy was instantly ripped away, but thankfully the remainder held and spiralling downwards, Smith was deposited into the water, as luck would have it, only 75 yards from a fishing boat. Smith's luck held, as the boat's skipper was a former Navy rescue expert, and within minutes they had him on board and were powering the short distance to the shore and help. When he was brought into hospital, George Smith was close to death, with severe internal blood loss and only a faint pulse. The doctors worked on him for hours, and their dedication and skill was rewarded a week later when he regained consciousness, able to hear but blind. His recovery was slow and punctuated with more operations, and his weight fell to only 150 pounds, a mere 68 kilos. His damaged liver meant that he could never drink again, but eventually the hemorrhages in his eyes healed and his sight returned. Not only had Smith survived, but he was eventually able to return to flying, albeit in slow, prop-driven aircraft, but ultimately he returned to pilot jets. He even got back into an F-100, and he lived for nearly 40 more years. Not all ejections go according to plan, or are even intended. Mainman Micah told me about the unusual and worrying experience of Lieutenant Keith Gallagher, the bombardier of a KA-6, the tanker version of the A-6 intruder, Lizard 515. He and his pilot had been flying circles over their carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln, giving fuel when required, when they noticed that their left-hand outboard drop tank was stubbornly refusing to feed its fuel up into the wing. Accordingly, and in line with their procedures, they applied positive and negative Gs in an attempt to encourage the reluctant fuel valve to open. Gallagher felt the familiar sensation of negative G but then something unusual happened. He felt his head touch the canopy above him. He thought for a moment that he hadn't tightened his straps properly, but before he could work out what was going on, there was a loud bang, followed by a roaring and buffeting as he hit the slipstream. He was confused and disorientated as he was forced back into his seat, his head against the headrest and his arms flailing behind him. Trying to work out what had happened, all sorts of thoughts rushed through his imagination. 
Did the windscreen give way? Did the canopy blow off? Did he eject? Amid the pandemonium that was going on in his mind and all around him, he looked down at a sight that was almost impossible to understand. Keith Gallagher was looking down at the top of the intruder's canopy, close enough to touch, through which he could see the top of his pilot's helmet. He was in a dire situation. His helmet and mask had been ripped off, and the full force of the slipstream was in his face, making it almost impossible to breathe. He managed to drag his arms forward, and he held them into his chest, trying to keep them there. Still trying to grab a breath, he decided the best thing was to complete the ejection sequence, so he reached down and pulled the ejector seat pan handle, but it wouldn't budge, and he couldn't get his hands up to the top handle against the strength of the wind that was battering him. Below him in the cockpit, Keith's pilot was putting out a mayday call and requesting permission to land back on the carrier. The airboss told him to bring it on in, and asked if his bombardier was still with him. He replied that only his legs were still in the aircraft. Up above him, Gallagher was having a terrible time of it. The wind was overwhelming him, both physically and mentally, pounding at him like a huge wall of water that wouldn't stop. He couldn't catch his breath or see, and time stood still as he was suffocating. As he blacked out, his last thoughts were of his wife, and he thought to himself, I don't want to die. Setting up for his approach and landing, Keith's pilot didn't want to risk missing the wire, so he touched down just short of the number one wire, and as the aircraft shuddered to a halt, he closed the throttles. He looked up at the hole in the perspex and the jagged canopy shards that were right in front of his bombardier's chest, and said a silent prayer that he wasn't impaled on them. As the deck crew gathered around, it became clear just how lucky Keith Gallagher had been. His parachute had deployed and wrapped itself around the tail of the intruder, and his seat straps had been released, so the only thing holding him in place was his parachute harness. After recovering in hospital, Keith wrote to his old shipmates to thank them, telling the story of his recuperation. Half of his right arm had been paralysed due to stretched nerves in the shoulder, and his left arm was injured as well. It was thought that his arms had become dislocated and that they popped back in during the landing. It took a while for all the damage and swelling to calm down, but after much physical therapy, he recovered and flew again, six months to the day after his terrifying ordeal. Most ejections occur in the air, but for Navy pilots, there's always the chance that they might have to use their ejector seats underwater. But only a handful of pilots have ever attempted such a thing, let alone survived it. Russ Pearson was one such pilot who had been training for his initial carrier qualifications at night off the coast of California. It had been a long, gruelling day as he lined up his A7 Corsair II with the Meatball optical guidance system on the deck of the USS Constellation. 
as he threw his aircraft down onto the deck, he caught the three-wire for what felt like a perfect landing, but all was not well. He had let his A-7 drift a little left of the ideal line-up, and as the wire pulled him to a grinding halt, he was dangerously close to the left edge of the deck. He felt a hard jolt as his left main gear slipped off the edge of the deck, and in less than a heartbeat, the plane was precariously perched above the inky black water. Russ shut down his engine, and as the generator wound down, the cockpit fell into darkness. All was quiet, but he knew he was in serious trouble. Then the momentary stillness was shattered as the aircraft lunged forward. The tailhook had parted company with the arresting cable, and the aircraft tumbled off the flight deck, plunging down sixty feet before impacting with the water. It was like falling down a black hole. Navy survival training is second to none, so Rust knew he had about ten seconds before his aircraft sank below a hundred feet. Few pilots ever come back from there. An underwater ejection was the only option, and was theoretically possible in the A-7, but no one had ever tested it. There was also the chance he might eject directly into the carrier's hull that was passing overhead, or even worse, into one of her massive propellers. The odds for survival were grim and getting worse every second. Russ waited, trying to judge when the ship would be clear and then he reached down and pulled the seat pan ejection handle. Nothing happened. During stressful moments, time does funny things, and the millisecond delay seemed to take forever, and Russ imagined himself sinking into the depths, trapped in a multi-million dollar coffin. But then there was a blinding flash of light. The rocket motor had fired, and in an instant he was out of the cockpit and clear of the seat, although still well below the surface of the cold, dark water. He couldn't breathe as his mask was down below his chin, and in the darkness he had no idea which way was up. It was like he had been shot from a cannon into a pool of jet-black ink. In less than a minute, he had gone from being a cocky, self-assured carrier pilot to a desperate young 25-year-old fighting for his life. Just then, he caught sight of lights above him. The deck crew had thrown illuminated ones over the side to mark the aircraft's position, so in the nick of time, Russ started swimming towards them. As he surfaced, he grabbed lungs full of sweet air, but it was then that he felt an excruciating pain in his back. Once more, he was also being pulled back under the surface by his parachute, which was still attached to his harness and acting like a huge sea anchor, and it was winning. As if this wasn't enough, he felt some vast thing come up from the depths and brush against him. Relief passed through his mind as he realised that, nearly empty of fuel, his A7 had bobbed back to the surface and was helping to support him. Hanging on, he eventually managed to find the inflation toggles of his life vest, 
that had been wrenched around the side of his body during the ejection and inflate his vest. Then he found the cock fasteners that connected him to his parachute and, in an instant, the drag was gone. It didn't take long for the search-and-rescue helicopter to find him and, for once, he started to appreciate the homely, wind-blowing, water-churning contraption that now looked like an angel of mercy. Nothing could have been more beautiful. Before long, he had been stretched into the ship's sick bay, where he found out what the pain had been. Russ had broken his back. The medical officer wanted to get the injured pilot to a shore hospital as soon as possible, but the medevac helicopter had room for only one, and a casualty from the flight deck was a more urgent case, so Russ lay back, waiting. About an hour later, a young foreman came running into the ward. He was out of breath. Word just came down from Air Ops that the medevac flight had engine problems and went down in the water about halfway to the beach. The crew got off a mayday and another search and rescue helicopter found the wreckage right away, but there were no survivors, not even the doctor. Naval aviation had turned out to be as dangerous as it was glamorous. In three short days, Russ Pearson had cheated death twice. Wow. What a story. You keep outdoing yourself, Nick. Wow. Seriously. <laughs> who'd, who'd be a, uh, a bear or a Navy pilot? I think... <laughs> I feel sorry for the Probably bear. something to avoid. <laughs> yeah, so do I. I mean, you're punched out of a hustler. Uh, you probably don't get much pay. Um, you survive, uh, only to have the medics uh, do you in at the last moment. I think mm. that's very unfair. Exactly. Very unfair. I, know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you survive the ejection, just you know, leave the bear alone. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I think nowadays we've got test test uh, dummies, don't we? Uh, crash test dummies to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I used to be those. Sorry for the bears. Used to be those ejection seats were just a bear. Yeah. Oh, freaking! <laughs> but I noticed on their little scoreboard they put up that there were some monkeys too. They didn't mention the monkeys. Well, they're so, monkeys. Uh, yeah. Come Good on, they're not cuddly monkeys. bears. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, boo boo. Okay, boo boo. Look at the picnic basket. <laughs> I love, <laughs> love that cartoon. Oh yeah, that was good yeah, stuff. So that now guy, we know why. Now we know why it stopped. I'm glad to see that making a, a appearance in there. Yeah, and uh, that last one uh, was interesting. Uh, ejecting from under the water. I think well, I can't, that's not going to work. No. I well, never thought that was even, that, that was even an option. I never never realized that, that was possible. I don't know about uh, your navy, but I've spoken to some of our guys who uh, flew with the navy, and uh, they some aircraft that didn't have ejector seats had a sort of underwater equivalent that would mm-hmm. help them get free. But um, I understood it was a last ditch maneuver. It was you know it was a thing guys were taught to attempt. But the ejector seat manufacturers said, well, you know, it's not designed to do that, so you do it at your own risk. Yeah, it might work. Yeah. Give, it, give it a try. Still thinking about that. In this case, it did, huh? Yeah, that's well, awesome. Still thinking about and that Mike, Mike 1 ejection. Like, oh, my gosh, that relative win. 
Yeah. Mike, I was saying on the, and I was, I was going to bring this up just now. Mike says the uh, B-58, it was an ejection capsule, not just an ejection seat. That's why they were testing it with bears to make sure that the uh, capsule closed around the occupant. That was a really interesting, uh, really interesting. Yeah, actually, there's there. some really good uh, yeah. uh, videos on YouTube about that. Yeah. If you, anyone's yeah, very interested. And, it, and yeah. I, we actually saw the real thing uh, at the uh, Yusef Museum alongside the Hustler was that ejector seat pod. And the dead um, bear right next to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and a half-eaten picnic basket. <laughs> All right. Well, keep up the great work on those uh, plain tales, Nick. They uh, so. really are the best part of the show. All right. Well, um, under 40 minutes remaining in our flight, ladies and gentlemen. So... <laughs> Uh, I think we should uh, continue to move on and try to knock out some of this feedback. So let's uh, resume uh, with item three from Rob. Hello from Down Under. Hi, Captain Jeff, the APG crew and community. A fairly new listener, but syndrome-inflicted, rusty private pilot from New Zealand here. I first came across your entertaining and informative podcast around the 400th episode and have been hooked ever since. Yes. Got another one. <laughs> you have made it's my... It's infectious. Yes, it is. It is. You have made my daily commutes and fitness runs so much more entertaining. A couple of episodes back, you were replying to some feedback regarding the differences between flying commercially and flying for the military. You mentioned that your military flying took you to so many countries you would never have visited, uh, one of which was New Zealand. At a guess, I wondered if you may have flown the C-141 to Christchurch, my home city, which is beautiful, by the way, but I've never been there, to support the U.S. Operation Deep Freeze. We had a supply base for the U.S. Antarctic program here for many years and loved to watch the ski-equipped Hercules, C-141 Starlifters, and the occasional Galaxy fly in and out of the city. My girlfriend at the time worked with the wife of one of the Americans stationed at the base, and knowing I was an aviation enthusiast, geek, uh, was able to give us a guided tour of the C-141 one evening see attached photo a real thrill a real thrill <laughs> a real thrill at the time early 1980s that's actually when i was flying no. the starlifter the early 80s uh, we were even invited to a hangar hoedown this consisted of hay bales county music and oh should be country, country. Yeah, yeah country, country music, music. Oh, yeah. Country, thinking, what's yeah. county music <laughs> it's irish it's right? like it's like country music but it's, <laughs> and, but it's from yeah. ireland it's regional <laughs> regional yeah. okay uh this consisted of hay bales country music and copious amounts of budweiser quite a novelty for us kiwis i still remember the headache the jury is out on the beer yeah <laughs> yeah we agree yeah yeah um, it's like you know see a previous episode about fosters Beer yeah. And yeah. Last episode. Yeah. About Budweiser. Yeah. Foster's APG for beer. That was the title <laughs> last episode. Hey, um, just to let you know, um, our squadron uh, at Travis Air Force Base was flying that mission, Operation Deep Freeze. However, I was still pr pretty new to the squadron, and you had to be one of the people that had been around for a while and you had to know the right people, you know, to be involved in that particular mission. So unfortunately I never got a chance to get down to Christchurch and do any of that kind of flying. I just wasn't there long enough. Uh, but w when I referred to New Zealand, it was on a special mission um, that landed in at a Royal um, New Zealand air force base uh, just North of, or near Auckland. And that's uh, we, we picked up a top secret Navy, boat 
and uh, some seals and uh, took them from Auckland, New Zealand. (laughs) Dang it. I always forget. Don't say that word, Jeff. Don't say. (laughs) But thank you. I knew it was coming too. (laughs) You know, I should have have thought about that. Um, So from Auckland to uh, Brisbane and then Brisbane to Darwin and then Darwin to Kiwi Point in the uh, Philippines and then ultimately to, uh, that's where we dropped the, the Navy folks off. And then up to uh, nice. uh, Clark Air Base, uh, just up the road. Ah, John says it's uh, when you happy. When you happy? Oh yeah, that is it. Um, I, I didn't want to even attempt uh, pronouncing it, but that is exactly the uh, the base that we flew well, into. I, I believe it's actually pronounced vanilla pie. Huh? <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> well, we'll, we I called it when you happy, but. Uh, John will tell us if I'm correct. I think it's pronounced vanilla pie. Or Glenn will, uh, I don't know if Glenn's with us today, but uh, he'll send us <laughs> some email probably about it too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Audio feedback with proper yeah. pronunciation. I'm yeah. afraid I only got into Oharkia, which was the fighter base. But uh, ah. I love the country. I mean, I flew around a bit uh, while we were in there, but I uh, loved it. Great. Okay, there's the yeah. pronunciation there, uh, Nick, for you. Uh, Fenua pie. Panua pie. Actually, that's not so bad. Uh, so the WH is pronounced with an F. Okay. The crazy oh, no. Louise, crazy people. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's a Maori name, probably. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's continue. My girlfriend. Okay, I think we already did that. Um, I think you're right there. Yeah. Last year, we the previously mentioned girlfriend, now long-term wife finally managed to tick off Oshkosh on our bucket list. Wish I'd known about you guys then. It would have been great to have met you all in person. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been. It was a good time. Mm. We met all kinds of great people and some others. I'd send you a current photo, but to be honest, we haven't changed a bit. <laughs> and then, right. Uh, sure you haven't. <laughs> I'm looking at the seats. Yeah, but do they have a uh, current cockpit. picture of themselves in a C-141? So. Yeah. Um, it looks a bit garish, those seats. You sure this was a military airplane? Yeah. I was at the side. It looks like they got off a I really, couch or something. I don't remember those yeah. at all. I don't. The, I, the, air, the 141Bs that I flew did not have seats like that. Yeah, that's a uh, that's because that's not a someone reupholstered. Oh, uh, what is it? Yeah, Rick? that's a seven forty seven dash one hundred. There but, you go. Um, but but not all seven forty sevens have those. Seats. <laughs> I've seen those before. <laughs> oh come on, Rick! You, no, you fly with that kind of seat all the time, don't you? Well, but but I do, but I bring my own. (laughs) Your own seat cover, because Jeff's been sitting in it naked again. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's a seven four, unmistakable. All right, Liz is telling me only half an hour to go on our show. We need to hurry here. Let me end this one. Hope you have clear skies and tailwinds. If any of you ever make it this far south, I would love to introduce you to some superb, locally brewed IPAs. Actually, some of the best in the world. These kiwis are so modest. Oh, they are. They really are. Uh, take care and keep the blue side up. Best regards, Rob. And Rob, I'm sure you look exactly as you do in this photo, this handsome photo with an awesome mustache and a, a beautiful yeah, girlfriend. Slash wife. It'll make it yeah. easy to pick Bell up. bottom pants and plastic shoes and all. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Afro, the whole nine yards. <laughs> yep, yep. Groovy, man. All right. <laughs> Groovy. Uh, item four. 
uh, Chris writes in. This is Chris, uh, the guru. He likes to call himself. We do, too. Uh, At the end of last year, I started working with the Alabama Community College System, supporting our system-wide enterprise applications. That's uh, IT stuff. I saw a flight instructor job posted at one of our colleges that I wanted to pass along for you to share. With all the challenges in the aviation industry, I figure someone in our community might see this as a great opportunity. The application deadline is July 24th, so you don't have a lot of time. Hopefully, I'll get this thing out. By the time this is published, probably only have about five or six days, so hurry. Uh, The link will be in the show notes, ITSN. I hope you are all doing well. Take care, and God bless. Thank you, Chris. We are, and uh, thanks for sending that in, and hopefully somebody out there, or perhaps somebody out there in... uh, Northern Alabama uh, might be interested in uh, this job. All right, we're going to skip to item nine. And uh, this is a good one. Um, This is from Conductor Will. All aboard! It's just been a few weeks now since I discovered your show. I've never been much of a talk show podcast person. My first thought when I saw the shows are three hours long is... There is no way I can listen to this. <laughs> and after listening, I, yes, you're right. No, he says, uh, especially yeah. since my drive to and from work is only an hour each way. Well, I find myself hooked on the show now, and I'm going back and listening to old episodes to fill the remaining five hours of my weekly commute time. Oh, no. It sounds like he has the syndrome. Oh, boy. Case APG Syndrome. What do most people do? They scream. APG syndrome. Like this guy. Ah! (laughs) Still working on some kind of a vaccine or um, protocol to. I mean, go go around to salons a little bit of a, you know. Yeah. Holds you over some side effects. Not to mention that the the company making the pharmaceutical is in China and been having some issues with that. So anyway. Uh, let's see, uh, since you'll be traveling across country by train soon, I figured I should say hi. Hi. I work for a major intercity passenger railroad. He says, Acme track as a conductor or the captain of the cars. I hope you have a great trip and wanted to recommend a fantastic website to track the route and progress of your trains. And then he gave uh, me a, a link for that. And, uh, There is a ton of useful information on there. Just about everything you click opens up more information about the trains and the stations. Yeah, I was actually just looking at it. Um, It's uh, pretty interesting. You click on there to tell you how they're going to be at each station and where they're currently at, how fast they're going. Excellent. Yeah, pretty neat. I'll uh, Mm -hmm. definitely be referring to it. Thank you very much. It's like the flight radar. I know. It's like flight uh, radar 24 for trains. For trains, yeah. Train radar. Let's see. Let's see. You're going to try to show it to me? it, It looks like that. Oh, oh neat. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, he says, uh, if you have any questions during your trip, feel free to drop me a line. I, I might just do that. Conduct where me. is the free beer on the train? Yeah, where is the free beer? That's what I want to <laughs> Yeah. Okay. All aboard. Apparently, apparently the apparently the train from uh, Miami to Havana is not running right now. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The bridge is out. Yeah, okay. Bridge, yeah. uh, item 11. Uh, this is from... John Padua. Uh, Let's see. Hello, Captain Jeff and the APG crew. My name is John. I'm a relatively new listener to the show. Started around episode 395 or so. I am also a six-month new hire first officer on the Embraer 175 for a regional airline in the U.S. Something that has been on my mind, apart from my job being on the line (laughs) come October 1st, eh, sorry, 
is how to deal with those so-called, quote, trouble captains. I am proud to say that 99.9% of the captains I've flown with have been nothing short of fantastic. However, it's the other 0.1%, isn't that always the case? It's always the case. Uh, that every company has that make for a few not-so-enjoyable times on the flight deck. While I haven't had any major conflicts or crew resource management breakdowns with these captains, I have observed a few strange and uncomfortable moments. These have ranged from minor, yet noticeable, deviations from our company's standard operating procedures to chewing out a gate agent for not closing the boarding door 10 minutes early so he could, quote, drop the parking brake and start the payment clock. I never talked to him about that, as I probably should have. One moment that stood out was when a captain disagreed with me for using a SOP, Standard Operating Procedure Approved Technique, with the FMS flight management system. Even after he asked me to show him where in the SOP this technique was, he still insisted I use a different technique of his that he determined or de deemed was more professional. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. professional for sure. Yeah. Uh, while I've received wisdom and advice from others about this, I wanted to get your thoughts on this topic. How did you deal with these types of captains as first officers? How did you find your voice as first officer on the flight deck when it was needed? How do you as captains make for an open environment for your FOs and crew to feel comfortable and able to speak up? I think other listeners who work in and are new to multi-crew environments would benefit from hearing from your experience. Um, and then he uh, added a PS, Captain Jeff, I find it really cool that you used to run a podcast called The Catholic Pilot and talk about your involvement with your involvement with your church every so often. As a Catholic myself, it's refreshing to hear a fellow pilot express their faith in an environment where it seems or sometimes is seen as taboo. Sincerely, John Padua. And uh, he's an FO uh, for Jeff, a regional. Jeff, yes. I think we should just tell this guy to shut up and move yeah. on. Well, who, who put this piece of garbage uh, <laughs> Uh, feedback in the in the folder, Liz. You're fired. Yeah. Bye. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Actually, don't leave us. <laughs> don't leave us. It's a joke. I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask first. Has have you, uh, John? Have you watched the most recent installment of the Living the Dream uh, YouTube videos where they have the four day bunch yeah. of captains? That's yeah. pretty. I don't think i classic. Oh yeah. Oh, that's oh that's it's great. that one's good. It's great. It's, it's worth watching. If you haven't watched it yet, definitely check that out. Okay. You'll, I think you'll sympathize a little bit with, um, yeah. Le um, is it Len Morgan? I think uh, he's uh, rest in peace. Uh, was a longtime um, airline pilot that used to have a column at the the back of the fly a flying magazine called Vectors, and um, he uh, had a great. Uh, column on this particular subject as well. And he kind of broke down like three or four different, you know, traditional um, stereotyped captains, you know, the outdoorsman and the the farmer and the this and that, you know, so it's kind of cute. Uh, but he did talk about um, the difficulty and, um, and um, frustration and um, whatever of uh, being a first officer and how the, to be successful, a lot of times you just have to be a chameleon and try to adapt to that particular personality. But luckily, back in the day, that was a lot more of an issue. Uh, nowadays, mostly, as you said uh, in his uh, feedback, John did, uh, that 99.9% .9 of us yeah. are standardized and are, are decent people to fly with. But, just that other 0.1%. Obviously, John is asking from the captain's perspective, but uh, we could also ask somebody from a first officer's 
perspective um or do you want us to start no, first no no i no, i uh, i'll say a couple things um i know when you're when you're brand new especially if you've never flown a jet before you you kind of have that uh you're a little intimidated to begin with you know because you know the first time you're actually flying the plane is with people on board so uh, you know your first couple flights that you're with a check airman and everything but you know even then it's you know that intimidation factor and everything especially your first hundred hours you know you kind of don't have you don't feel like you can speak up or say anything because you're still learning and everything but you know after a couple hundred hours you get start you know getting more confident and know how things are supposed to go so that's kind of when you start finding your voice as he was saying um i know it's not easy sometimes to uh, deal with people um that's really the hardest thing about the job i think is dealing with people's different personalities and their leadership style um, if you want to call <laughs> he's it using that. air quotes by yeah. the way when he said leadership yeah style but um you know because some some captains they're um you know they're kind of like rick you know just make sure you're stable uh before a thousand feet so we don't have to go around you know and follow sop and then the worst thing you can generally hear is when you first sit down with them up front is hey i'm just strictly sop that's usually your first indication. <laughs> usually the opposite. You, you, you need to start, you know, paying t- attention. And, you know, that, that's really what it comes down to is paying attention to, it. are they doing things right? Um, are you, you know, if, if it's different, you know, you need to ask questions, especially if it's something that's unsafe. Um, and that's that's a really a hard thing to do. Um, and just from my experience, I, unless it's going to jeopardize the aircraft or the people, it's sometimes best to wait to get on the ground and park at the gate before you bring it up because you do not know how the other person is going to react to it. Yeah, um, that's good about exactly. Yeah, um, I've had conversation go south before, and it was a very uncomfortable thirty-minute flight back up to Atlanta. So, um, just not to mention that it's, it's somewhat dangerous. It, it is because yeah. you know you don't know what the other guy's going to do. You're both going to get distracted. Um, you know things can happen. Um, but yeah, and then the one other thing I'll say: just pick the hill you want to die on. If it's if it's something minor, just you know, maybe mention it, but if it's just the way that he's, you know, doing something different that you've seen before, maybe you haven't seen before, but it's not going to jeopardize something. Just pick, pick the hill you're going to die on carefully. Yeah. Okay. Um, Rick, you're a new captain. Uh, well, a a, a, a born again <laughs> captain. I'm a born again. <laughs> <laughs> you've been a captain before. I should, I should make sure I wanted to clarify. It's not your first rodeo. No. And, uh, I, I mean, I agree with, with, with everything, you know, you just said there, um, you do need to, you do need to, uh, you said it perfectly, pick the, the hill you want to die on. You got to pick your battles, you know, cause at the end of the day you are, you know, you're moving through the air at eight miles a minute. And so sometimes that's not the best, uh, the best time to bring something up. Um, as far as, uh, a couple of the things I could add, you know, being an FO, uh, you, I'm not going to say this politely here. Because um, <laughs> that's what we do. Place. And don't, just, just say it. Just blunt. Just, well, I mean, sometimes you just kind of have to, um, sometimes you just kind of have to push back a little bit as well. Because, I mean, you are you are sitting there because you are qualified to, 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 to sit there. You're not, you're not just, uh, you know, you're just not an accessory to the cockpit. You are a qualified type rated member of the crew and if you weren't you wouldn't be sitting there so obviously i understand how uh starting out and uh, your first hundred hours and all that stuff obviously you're there more uh you know you're not there in a learning capacity because all you have to learn you you learned on 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 indoc and all that 
but you are still, you know, your 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 learning curve still you know, a little little, it, little steeper than it, others it, because it's you, more you just, the tribal started. knowledge that you're learning. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. But what I, what I what I'm what I'm saying here is that uh, sometimes captains pick up on this, and they, they you see a you see a a a high you know employee number, for example, and you go, oh, but this guy hasn't been around for that long, and so that's going to that's going to put the captain in, 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 uh, in a, uh, that might, depending on the personality of the guy or the gal might make them a bit more abrasive towards you because they don't respect you as much because you haven't been there as long. And uh, really all it takes is as long as you are in the right and you are, um, um, just professional. And if you find a little bit of push, push back, you know, just, just make, make sure the other guy or the other person knows that uh, you're not a pushover. You know, and uh, you just got to be you have to because we as pilots, we're all, you know, type A personalities. And uh, sometimes all it takes is a little bit of pushback for the guy to realize, oh, shit, you know, I can't I can't push this guy around. So maybe, you know, we, we, we are equals. Just you are you are equals indeed. So just act like one, you know, wear that and understand that you are an equal there, because if you weren't, you wouldn't be sitting there. Yeah, know that if if you're in the right, um, if it gets to the point where you got to go talk to the chief pilot or whatever, then you know you can go in there with confidence and say, "Well, just absolutely following the procedures," right. and you know what did absolutely I do wrong? Absolutely right. And don't be afraid to 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 voice your concerns when things are not right. And also, don't be afraid to take control of the aircraft if you ever find yourself in a position that you have to take control of the aircraft. That's, which I've that's done a tough later. one. That's a tough one. I've done. And, uh, yeah, and, um, <laughs> it's just, um, it, it just gets to that point. And you know what? The time I did it, this, this happened years and years ago. The first time I was an FO and I was with, with a very, very senior, um, uh, management type pilot who, uh, hadn't been to the old, the, the old Quito airport. I talk about it a lot because it was a very, very tricky airport to go into. Uh, this pilot I was flying with was a, uh, was filling in on a trip um and uh, he hadn't been there uh, and usually the keto used to be a, a not not really it wasn't really written that it was a captain only airport but it was the, mo- the the more challenging of the of, of the airport so usually a captain flew in there and so this guy went in there and uh he he got uh he got things got a little little hairy there and i i, I made a couple call outs and he didn't react he didn't respond so i had to take over and i did and after we landed, he actually thanked me for it. He said, you know what? You did the right thing. And, and uh, you know, congratulations for, for being assertive. And so don't be afraid yeah. to take control when you have to. Because at yeah, the end don't. of the day, I mean, you're, you're up there with them. And if something happens, it's both of you. Don't suffer from co-pilotitis. Exactly. Exactly right. Steph, did you have something to say? I, was, I think I was going to say about the same thing that you said. Sorry for the... Uh thunder in the background there if you oh, could hear stormy that me again <laughs> yeah imagine that that never happens yeah. uh, hmm. uh you know so similar stuff just in my own career path where you're you know talking with people with different levels of experience but um what i was going to say before jeff uh, jumped in so the same thing is basically you know if you know you're if it's something you're confident you're in the right on or if it's something that like steven was saying is is safety critical that's the time to speak up and not let it be an issue until you you get on the ground. So, um, yeah, it, it was all the same stuff. Nick, uh, uh, it was a bit odd coming from a military background. Uh, on the squadron, our debriefs after a flight would have been considered absolutely brutal in the civil world. Nobody held back. We used to rip each other to shreds. Um, all in the 
justification of you know th this this could have been war and people would have died because of that mistake um the civil world was quite a transition but not a bad one uh, and the wonderful thing about the guys i worked with um i worked with higher guys and they were some of the most professional people i had ever met and uh, to be absolutely truthful uh one perhaps two guys in 25 years of flying um rubbed me up the wrong way because they were uh, you know uh, one guy could never let you fly the airplane uh you had to do it uh, he was like a talking autopilot he told <laughs> you when to do everything yeah oh i and, love those yeah uh, and another guy was just non sop and he was a trainer he just did nothing uh, standard he was a trainer was yeah absolutely <laughs> which was very frustrating he would kind of like turn it on and turn it off so you know i suspect when he was doing his sims and check rides and things um it, you know he would turn it on it was by the book yep but i know a yeah. lot of captains who uh, said if i ever i get that guy as a trainer in my simulator i'm going sick um <laughs> uh, so uh and, and I, I always found that, uh, you know, as long as you did everything in a nice and easygoing manner and made the cockpit yeah. environment one that uh, made it simple for people to bring things up, I was perfectly happy if one or someone wanted to comment on my flying. Uh, no one's perfect uh, at any time during the flight because I was always very open to that. Um, I often found that some people weren't, uh, and I think it depended on their their background, their upbringing, because I'd been used to having my um, uh, used to have a new orifice ripped out of me uh, after every flight in the military. I found the civil world just so easy to cope. So to much do, more civil. You know. Absolutely, <laughs> very civil in the civil world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so, at the end of the day, it comes back to professionalism. You know, everyone's there because they're a professional at what they do. Um, you have to have a culture of mutual respect and um, um, yeah, basically mutual trust as well, that the other person's there to do the job they're trained to do. Um, and if that starts to break down, then, yeah, then it's, it gets a little bit tricky. But absolutely, like all Rick the said, that have been offered. You've both got the same license, usually. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Exactly. It's only a matter of time that puts you in the other seat. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're you're on the left because you have the seniority to hold that position. Yeah. And there's a little bit more to it than that. But well, you ticked a few boxes to get there. Yeah. But in uh, essence, yeah, that's the, what it is. Everyone so. gets their chance to get in the left seat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I forgot who it was that said, uh, you know, setting uh, the the atmosphere uh, of an open environment. Uh, it's it's a I think a true leader is one that in his or her own way makes it clear that they are in charge of everything, but we still want everyone to participate as a team and, you know, give their input so that we all succeed together. And um, the ones that make uh, throw impediments, uh, in, in the way uh, are the ones that uh, don't succeed. <laughs> They're not going to have a team that's going to want to support them. And if something does go wrong, they might be just pleased as heck for that to go wrong. Yeah. Uh, not safety wise, but you know, uh, 
other like um, administratively personnel wise kind of yeah right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so and and i never understood why the people that are like that they just don't get it i mean if you if you just treated your crew with respect and uh you you would you would come out looking and doing so much better and now yeah. oh absolutely it's just like going to be miserable yeah. for you but maybe that's what you like misery i mean to me it makes sense you want the people that you're working with to like working with you, especially if you're in a leadership position. Right. I mean, it doesn't make yeah, for absolutely. a good day for anyone if everyone's at each other's throats or afraid to say something because something's not going right or there's a problem. That's just and we've all we've all been in that position where we look at our schedule and we see that guy and we go, oh, we have yeah. to fly with that guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. so just don't don't be that guy. That's what my all all my cool. first officers do. <laughs> oh, my name. Go watch the, the live in the dream. The fourth, uh, fourth part. <laughs> That's really good. That's, That's good. <laughs> Excellent. We'll do that. Yeah, and I, I'll just say one more thing. I, uh, when Jeff was scrolling through your feedback, I, I, I believe we work at the same Acme Junior Carrier, and uh, I, mm-hmm. I know our uh, management staff at the Chicago base is really good about this kind of thing. And if you you have an issue with any of the captains, go go talk to them. I, I can't tell you how many times I've I've been talked to another captain, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I." I I flew with him when I was an FO and it's a string of things. So they, they know who our problem people are and that they're more than happy to hear you out on what's going on. Cause they don't want those guys um, causing issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and if you're flying for an airline such as Acme, that is, um, uh, has a union representing the pilots. Uh, we at Acme have a great uh, division or committee called professional standards and it's our way to kind of try to take care of a problem if somebody is unsafe or just a jerk or whatever. Um, you uh, you can you know anonymously contact the professional standards representatives, and they can investigate it. And what they do, I've I've gotten on a couple of occasions calls from somebody from professional standards and say, Hey, Jeff, uh, yeah, like about two three weeks ago, you flew with Bob. And, um, you know, what, what did you think about Bob? <laughs> and, you know, like, well, you just wanted to get my opinion about, uh, this particular person, you know, you, you can be completely honest and, and, um, I guess in this case it wouldn't be anonymous because, uh, they, they contacted me. So they knew who, who I was, but, uh, it's probably more of them just going through who they flew with recently. This yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, hopefully they're, hopefully they're writing down your commentary is, uh, you know, anonymous and. Right. Yeah, I don't think there's any out, so. threat against you at all. And Not if it gets to the point, yeah, if it gets to the point where it really is kind of pushing the safety line, uh, then the professional standards will contact the company and work with them and say, look, this is a serious issue and we've we've tried to deal with it, uh, but it's not doing any good. And this is what, you know, you need to be aware of it. And you know what? Guess what? They probably already are. They probably yeah. already have a stack of uh, reports and information about this particular person. And they're just waiting for the right opportunity to ask that person to um, retire early. Yep. Mm-hmm. Hey, I retired early. Well, now we know why. Yeah. You are, you are <laughs> we were going to keep that all. Unbelievable. Anonymous. Miserable. <laughs> you know, I'm joking. You did it on your own volition, of course. That's what I and the chief you. pilot that we're aware of. <laughs> <laughs> that we're aware of. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I think I'm going to be retiring early too. <laughs> Just something came up. Yeah. I don't know. Don't yeah, want to talk yeah, about yeah. it. <laughs> no details. No details. Just this time. Yeah. 
All right. Well, that was a great, great feedback. Great question. Uh, just quickly, because uh, we were talking about the uh, living the dream thing. And on the was it the last episode or the episode before we did the uh, the animated video, um, um, the Llama Airlines? I think it was. It was before. Before. Oh, okay. yeah. It was the one before. Yeah. yeah. Let's see if I can find this one. Knock this one out pretty quickly. Number um, uh, 17. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Richard wrote in and said, I was listening to episode 432 and was amazed to hear the Llama International Airlines video. It's from a channel of a very good friend of mine called Flight Deck 2, uh, numeral 2, Sim. He is a Boeing 737 captain who uses his channel to apply real-world procedures to home simulators. It's really good for wannabe pilots or People who want to see how things are done properly. Maybe Dana could do with watching the 737 cold and dark startup video I'll include in this email. Uh, why not give my friend a shout out and get, get him a few more viewers and subscribers? Okay, so uh, the uh, YouTube uh, link is there. And uh, again, a shout out to Flight Deck 2 Sim. And uh, that will be in the show notes for you to check out. So thank you, Richard, for uh, you know help helping get the word out for your friend. Um, he said, "Wishing clear skies, no COVID nineteen, and just jo just jobs <laughs> in aviation." Really, ta ta for now, Richard. So there you go, done, boom. All right, you know what? I think uh, Liz uh, probably time to wrap it up. Okay. Um, so all the great feedback that we have here in our feedback notebook will be transferred to the next show's feedback. So if you didn't hear yours, don't, don't worry. We'll, uh, we'll get to it eventually. Uh, if you want to send feedback to us, you can do that by, uh, using our email address, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, you can go to our website and learn a lot of stuff. I mean, it's just jam packed with information about the crew and the, community and merchandise, the coffee fund, the APG library um, run by uh, Tiffany, our APG librarian. Um, Plain Tales has its own page where uh, Captain Nick puts uh, extra information in there and pictures and stuff uh, regarding uh, the uh, Plain Tales episodes that he does every week. And I'm sure there's much more there for you to check out. Oh, and the calendar as well. Uh, check that out. And we're also on the Socialmeads. We are. You can head over to Twitter.com. We're at APG Crew. You can find the same handle on Instagram at APG Crew and Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, Twitter in particular, good place to see when we're going to be recording a live show and if there's any last minute changes to that time or schedule um, and everywhere else for lots of good community interaction. So let's see you there on the Socialmeads. Absolutely. And... I don't know. Um, is is Hillel? Did you see him earlier? I heard something upstairs. Yeah, that bathroom that nobody really wants to get anywhere near for some reason. Um, right? Oh yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, I hear something. Hillel, Hillel, it's time. Time for Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at 
slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spell Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Jeff, you've got to try these towels. Okay. Towels were actually really nice. They are nice. They're yeah, really nice. you really do have to try these towels. Yeah, All right. Yeah, and also we have a big round of applause again for our producer hey. director in the control room. Thanks, Liz. In Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Liz. And uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. See you next time. Bye, everybody. See ya. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline pilot guy I fly America oh airline pilot guy he can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly a